VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, February the 23rd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Greg Smith is sitting in the producer's chair. So you'll be speaking with Greg when you give us a shout to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, you don't need me to tell you about an absolutely frigid, frosty morning out there today, certainly here in the metro region. I think it was at minus 7 when I got in the rig this morning to come to work. It's even colder now. The wind is whistling. Apparently heading to a wind chill of some minus 26 sometime tomorrow. In Lab West, heading towards minus 56. I mean, that's completely unbearable. So it's, it's chilly out there today, so you know the deal. All right, snow day yesterday. So, look, I understand, you know, erring on the side of caution. I understand safety is paramount when the district makes a decision whether or not to open up the provinces K-12 schools or whatever regions K-12 schools. But did yesterday's winter weather really constitute a snow day? I'm not so sure. You know, yeah, it was kind of windy and the snow was blowing around, but it wasn't really that bad, was it? And I know no one's got a crystal ball to know exactly what the weather's going to be like throughout the course of the day, but... Anywho, and yesterday was supposed to be pink shirt day, but it's going to be two days, so that's a big topic that absolutely is worthy of discussion if you're interested in bringing it to the show. All right, gold medal it is. Absolutely brilliant stuff. Our flag bearer, trampoline performer, no, trampoline athlete, pardon me, it's not Cirque du Soleil, so uh, Gleb Extigniev from Mount Pearl won the gold in the men's trampoline the first time this province has ever won that gold medal. He's a terrific young athlete at 18 years of age, so this is a great warm-up for the pending nationals, and he's going to the Junior Pan Ams in Mexico. So congratulations to Gleb Stignev from Mount Pearl. Brilliant stuff, man. Gold medal. What a thrill for him and his family, his friends, his supporters. Good stuff. All right, I don't know if you're watching any of the rivalry series. When it comes to women's hockey, there is no rivalry like Canada versus the United States. And so they, I guess, rightfully dubbed the series, the seven-game series, the rivalry series. So I watched a bit of it last night, and Game 7, you know, you usually expect a fairly tight affair when it's been so close throughout the prior six games, but Canada handed it to him last night, beat him 5 nothing. so terrific victory. Uh, Blair Turnbull had a couple of goals for the champs, uh, Ella, Stelton, or Ella Shelton, pardon me, Victoria Bach, and of course, Marie-Philippe Poulain, the captain, all chipped in to lead to the 5 nothing uh, victory, and Rene Debien, 25 saves in the shutout, good stuff there. Good-looking team. And you never know. In the very near future, we may see one or two people, from women from this province, on the national senior team. You know, Abby Newhook, Maggie Connors, fingers crossed. Let's keep going here. A uh, couple of interesting ones. So it was today in 1985 that the legend Patrick Roy made his debut for the Montreal Canadiens. And, of course, he played his uh, junior hockey in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League with the Granby Bisons. And, you know, this story is only in Quebec, but this story is part of the national conversation regarding elite sports and the type of abuse and the stories we've heard emanating from Hockey Canada, for instance. So there's testimony at the National Assembly in Quebec regarding hazing. Hazing uh, comes in many forms. So you join a team as a rookie, and it might be, say, for instance, in hockey. The hazing might be that you're fully responsible for filling up the water bottles and picking up the pucks after practice or carrying the veterans' bags to the bus, what have you. But it can also go to a very dark place of abuse, 
sexual, physical, and otherwise. Some people even refer to some of these stories as torture. There were six players came forward, tried to get a class action lawsuit certified in Ontario, got struck down. But because of their horrific stories, they've struck this commission in Quebec to look at it, and we can't get ourselves. And I'm personally familiar with the story, and I'll leave the community and the school out of it for the moment because nothing ever came of it in the court of law, as far as I understand. But the hazing happens. So it's certainly counterintuitive. It's a stupid, silly, toxic culture that is hung around different sports. And it's not just hockey. It goes right through the gamut. But they're having those conversations. It's probably an important one to have with our minor and amateur sports associations as well. Sticking with the French. Today, you know, I don't know if any of us really have a firm grasp on what, well, some of you probably do, on what 2041 really means with the expiration of the Upper Churchill contract, even though after that, Hydro-Quebec still has a 35% ownership stake in the project. So the Quebec Premier, Francois Legault, he's making his way to St. John's this evening and for high-level meetings tomorrow. Now, it really depends on who you're listening to as to what these meetings really will entail. So the Premier, Premier Fury, he says that these are high-level conversations, discussions. Premier Legault is calling them negotiations. So again, they're very different tones coming from both of the Premiers. Premier Fury says Quebec is coming to us. We have more leverage than we've ever had in the past. Premier Legault is coming talking about big pie-in-the-sky issues, not only with maybe adjustments to the Upper Churchill contract, and I wouldn't hold my breath on that, uh, that one for the so-called make us whole, like opposition leader David Brazel is suggesting is important. There's no reason to believe that they're looking to uh, have a retro look back at making us in a better financial position. And just for context... The most recent numbers are from 2019, but Hydro-Quebec and the province of Quebec is nudging up against $30 billion in uh, profits from the Upper Churchill. This province, closer to $3 billion. And we all know the deal. We all know the resentment and the, the way that many people in this province view the province of Quebec and view that particular contract. So Premier Fury will say, well, they have an enormous demand. Hydro-Quebec relies on a 15% of its power distribution coming from the Upper Churchill. So not only for domestic use, but for export as well. You know, whether or not we have the upper hand and have any levers to pull, I guess all remains to be seen. But, you know, Legault kind of sounds like he's coming to make a deal. And the Premier says there will be no late Friday afternoon announcement about any sort of close, the finalized deal, or an MOU, or anything of the sort. But he does say he will provide an update. That's where things get tricky. Like me and you, we're all the same in that we want information. We want details. We want the government to be transparent. And yes, the old buzzwords of accountability. The 2041 committee that was struck to review or to analyze what the commercial opportunities would be at the Upper Churchill, that report is in government's hand. They say they won't release it to jeopardize any commercial sensitivities. I understand that. So as much as Mr. Brazel and me and you, we'd like to know exactly what's going on in those meetings because there's a lot on the line here. And I don't know how much we're going to get in the way of detail. I don't know if it's a discussion or a negotiation or a conversation, but there is a, a lot to discuss. Wouldn't it be nice to be the proverbial fly on the wall to actually hear what's going on? Who's bringing what to the table? I'm not imagining any redress of the Upper Churchill, but then the Premier of Quebec also comes in talking about, you know, when he's speaking with his own media in the province of Quebec, he says, well, we've got 18 years. And, you know, we can do lots of work and build lots of dams between now and then. And he also throws around, in quite cavalier fashion, Gull Island. 
I don't know what kind of appetite there is here in this province for another mega project, especially a hydroelectric dam on the Grand River in Labrador. But Legault talks about it all the time. Now, this province has done plenty of work and analysis at the Gull Island site and the 2,225 megawatts available there. So, you know, the Quebec lever and their big position of, I guess, power would be that the flow of power south is on their transmission lines. So, look, there's very few people here in this province have any time for the Quebec stance on this issue. And remember, when we talk about Gull Island, and look, maybe we do have a position of power, probably better than we ever had in the past, but that's not saying a whole lot. And the province of Quebec was quick, uh, happy to challenge us in court all along the way until the Supreme Court of Canada said enough is enough. So we'll see what becomes of those conversations and whether we get any sort of detailed update after the meetings tomorrow from Premier Fury or whether or not Legault and Fury will make their way to the microphones together with something. I don't know, but I'm not expecting to hear a whole, whole lot about it. But as I say, there's certainly a lot on the line. Oh, and one more comment uh, regarding Gull. Remember, it's not that long ago that the Inu Nation told us that because of the rate mitigation deals, as people call them, the mitigation deals, they see about a billion dollars less revenue coming to them based on the new Dawn Agreement and the arrangements made between the Inu Nation and the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. They went further to say, unless they're made whole, Gull Island is dead. And that's Peter Panashway's words. Gull Island is dead. So if you want to take it on, we absolutely can and should do it. And dealing with Quebec, look, they carry a big stick, and, you know, as the cliche goes, they're the biggest bully on the block, and that's not meant as a direct and just salty insult, is that they carry a lot of weight. And over the years, they've proven to be quite obstinate and difficult to deal with. But whether it be with Route 138 in Quebec, the finishing of that highway with any hopeful aspirations for those who are fixed-link supporters, that's got to be done. Conversations and partnerships regarding minerals in the Labrador trough is just a geographical reality. And, you know, we've kind of lost sight of one of, the, I think, the biggest opportunities right in front of us here in this province to seize, to capture, cap the end, is critical minerals. We got them. You know, we really are well positioned and poised to be a big part of that, whether it be the whole concept of a national supply chain, because we're the only democratic country on the face of the earth with every critical mineral required for the batteries. Whether, and it doesn't matter if you like EVs or anything else. It's not the point because other people in the world really do. So whether it be the battery in your cell phone, your laptop, your tablet, your electric vehicle, we can be a big, big part of that. You want to take it on? I think it's an important conversation. All right. Good news for the folks in Central, whether it be in Grand Falls, Windsor, or Gander, and it was the concerns, and even coming from recommendations in the health accord, that obstetrics should indeed be delivered in one community only. That would be Grand Falls, Windsor. So there's been plenty of diversions from Gander to Grand Falls, Windsor, but now Minister Osborne says upon further assessment of the birth numbers in both communities, there will indeed be an obstetrics unit in both of those towns. So I guess that's a sigh of relief. When you hear the folks in Gander who are making their position clear, their numbers spoke for themselves. It really does sound like, you know, if there was going to be obstetric services in that part of central Newfoundland, then Gander would make all the sense in the world. If you hear from Grand Falls, Windsor, and they talk about their population base, their birth numbers, then there's an argument for it to be there as well. But the minister says there will indeed be two. Now comes the tough part. Now comes how do you staff both units effectively. And staffing issues are really fascinating stuff. And yesterday, Minister Osborne spoke about some of these numbers. So, you know, when we hear numbers like 136,000 people in the province without 
a doctor, a family doctor. Not every single person in the province was consulted on this. So a research company goes out and they do their level best to come up with as an accurate number as possible. And it went from 125 in the recent past to 136,000. Minister Osborne says that some of those numbers, even if you look back to the 2021 uh, year where there was a net loss of seven doctors, the minister says that whether it be through recruitment efforts internationally and with medical students here in this province, that the last six months paint a rosier picture. Okay, but he didn't go on and give us the most updated numbers that he knows about. You know, we can say, and we have we've been told, that it was effective and successful in India recruiting registered nurses. That we may indeed have some success coming from Ireland, where the province spent four days, or yeah, four days, went to six different communities. So all that's good. And the Come Home Your Initiatives, apparently 40 healthcare workers took up those dangled carrots and made their way back to this province. But it doesn't necessarily reflect how people feel. It doesn't reflect the stories that we hear. So, yes, it's fine to say we'll have obstetrics in both Canada and Grand Falls, Windsor. It's fine to say that the last six months paint a much rosier picture. And then they go on to talk about the ratio of forgetting a family doctor. Um, Minister Osborne says via Patient Connect, at one point, the province peaked at 48,000 people who say they don't have a family doctor. That number's down to 38,000. But, of course, not everybody who needs or wants a family doctor registered with Patient Connect, so the numbers are likely quite higher. Then they talk about the ratio of the number of uh, doctors to uh, residents per 100,000. Okay. So this is according to the Canadian Institute of Health Information. Newfoundland and Labrador has 265 physicians per 100,000 residents. The national average is 245. More doctors are working in the province than ever before. So it does beg the question. You know, we hear that some of the doctors that were indeed granted new licenses in the province, they're not working full-time. They don't have a full patient roster, willing to do locums or work at walk-in clinics or what have you. How many doctors are doing pure research versus carrying a patient load? We just don't know. So as much as we might be in better shape considering the national average with numbers of doctors per 100,000 residents, the woes seem very, very real. So what the numbers are showing in the minister's office are not necessarily being felt or reflected in the reality on the ground. So if there are some past six-month numbers that can you know, show or display that we are making advancements, that the recruitment and retention incentives are working, let's hear them. I think maybe sometimes we focus an awful lot on recruitment when maybe the bigger portion of the solution would be retention whether it be with graduates from any discipline in the healthcare delivery world and or doctors who have set up shop here and or any healthcare professional across the gamut because they all play an integral role from a registered nurse to an LPN to a nurse practitioner to a social worker, pharmacist, radiation, respiratory therapists and technicians. You know the deal, but the minister paints a picture that is a little bit better than how people feel out there. And, of course, in the mental health world, we're going to have a couple of mental health conversations today, which I think are always important. On that front, it looks like there's a healthcare infrastructure announcement coming at, uh, I think it's one thirty this afternoon. We will be there to bring you the details. And, of course, it'll be the Premier and the Minister, but also the Chief of Cardiac Care for Eastern Health, Dr. Sean Connors. So also joined by some leadership at Eastern Health. So with Dr. Connors' presence, I assume it's got to be directly related to cardiac services here in the province. We know they've implemented a new, what do they call it, Heart Force One, flying people in and out on the same day to the cath lab for their procedure. So... Anyway, there's always no, no end to the healthcare conversations. Very quick, just to switch it up, a little switch of gears. And as you know, this show is wide open to whatever topic you think is of interest, whether it be to you, and no topic too big, no topic too small. 
But I've read a lot in the recent past about, you know, the restaurants are trying to rebound and their struggles with food inflation and the like. But one of the growing conversations is about just how many places all of a sudden you're being asked to offer a tip. You know, it's, it's kind of amazing. There was only two or three kind of industries that you felt like tipping was, you know, required or should be considered. It's deeply ingrained in Canadians' heads to be tippers, which is unusual for many other countries in the world where tipping is un- unheard of. They just don't do it. But here, not only the tip creep, but there's so many restaurants that are moving away from a tip model, period. They're building in all their overhead costs, all the salaries, all the benefits into the menu price. And no tips allowed. Like some restaurants simply won't let you leave a tip. Now, I guess it's always up to you. If you want to slip a tenner to your waiter or waitress, that's always going to be your prerogative. But what would even be your preference? I don't mind being in the tip world. I worked in hospitality. And you know, Canadians, probably the issue with their willingness to continue to tip is that that industry was so battered that there's maybe a sense of, you know, trying to give a leg up to the men and women who are working, whether it be the cook staff, the serving staff, the hostess, the maitre d's, the owners, up and down the line. But do you prefer a tip model or a no-tip model? Anyway, throw that out there. Good luck to men's, women's and men's basketball teams as they make their way to the AUS championships. They're both seeded pretty low, but they've beaten most of the teams in the AUS one time or another throughout the year. So good luck to them as they travel to the AUS Championships, and congratulations, good luck for the remainder of the Kiwanis Music Festival. It's been ongoing since the 15th of the month. It runs until Saturday, and that's the 71st Kiwanis Music Festival. Congratulations to all hands who have participated and who have won their category, and off we go. Price of gas is down. Price of fuels are down across the board. Not a whole, whole lot, but down is good. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. Let's have a great show today. When we come back, we're kicking off the conversation with Jordan Stringer. He wants to talk about Western Health Psychiatry. Don't go away. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin on line number one. Good morning, Jordan. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. How about you? Uh, Today, I'm well. Thank you very much. I'm sitting in my uh, chili truck in the southwest arm looking out over the bay and... uh, quite enjoying the sunny morning. <laughs> well, that's the upside. And I know you, we've exchanged notes over the years. So what's going on with Western Health Psychiatry at the moment, Jordan? Well, um, <clears throat> there's quite a few things happening, actually. Um, uh, I guess the first thing is um, this letter that circulated. Well, I received, uh, I heard that someone received it on February 2nd, uh, but apparently it was circulating for a few weeks. And um, the letter uh, confronts uh, or sorry, faces anybody who basically or who did attend uh, a psychiatric clinic in Cornerbrook uh, for over three weeks or so. And uh, the letter is quite was quite uh, insensitive, offensive. Um, I could go on with, <laughs> with how I felt about it, but uh, that's the first thing I guess that that did happen. Uh, the second thing that I'm aware of is that we are down four psychiatrists in the last year or so. Our wait times uh, have uh, doubled, I think, or perhaps even more. Um, I've been without a psychiatrist now for a year, um, and I'm on a wait list, and I've been told that it's going to take over a year. And Jordan, I, before we go any further, help yep. people understand. Like I've heard from a variety of advocates who say that this letter that's circulating is insensitive and can be insulting. What does it say that makes advocates, yourself included, feel that way? 
Well, it offers no help. Uh, it, it basically says you're here for a visit. Uh, you're going to get one visit. Um, and then you're going to be shown the door or you're going to be redirected back to your general practitioner. Uh, and essentially, good luck. Uh, no follow-ups. If you don't have a general practitioner, as it says, and I want to remind everybody, a general practitioner is not a psychiatrist. Uh, they are not trained the same way or in mental health and medications. And while a general practitioner may be able to manage uh, a, a client's or a patient's medications, they're not necessarily, and I'm, of course, I'm generally speaking, they're not necessarily uh, able to uh, modify and change and, and readjust and, and look at that whole profile that that patient has. So I can only speak for myself here, uh, and I've had this conversation with my family doctor, who I'm very fortunate to have, uh, and he agrees that I should have a psychiatrist, and I should have a psychiatrist that I can check in with at any time, and I don't have that. And I find that is a great, great wrong in this province. It feels like a, a, a completely uh, completely dropping the ball on people who need the services like myself. There's, there's also some sentiments I've heard from some. Is that, I don't know if it's all the same letter, but there was some thought that there was reference to the fact that, well, now that you're stabilized and you're mm -hmm. on a better path, that you no longer need full-time access to the psychiatrist. And I suppose what they're trying to do here, and I'll get your thoughts, is because there's so many people on a wait list to see a psychiatrist, if they deem somebody to be stabilized, I don't even know if that's the right word, uh, so they can bring new patients in to begin them on the path to counseling or psychiatric services or whatever is required to put them in a better place. So to me, like for instance, if I have a health concern, and I have a family doctor, and I overcome that health concern, and I'm in a good spot of good health, I don't lose my family doctor. So how is it that I could be considered okay and don't need a psychiatrist, but I, nothing like that ever happens when you have, you know, a relationship with a cardiologist or your general practitioner or whatever the case may be. So we're handling it much different. There's a wait list to see all of these specialists. There's a wait list to get into a family clinic. So how are we treating mental health any different just by saying that you're better? When better is a relative term, better is also including long-term access to mental health treatment. Thank you. The other thing I'd like to point out is, um, sorry, I lost my thought there. <laughs> um, the other thing I'd like to point out is that uh, the letter advocates for a, a two-tier system. It references, you know, going elsewhere. Um, not everybody has that opportunity to private health care. Um, you know, especially with psychology, for example. I know that's a little, little off from psychiatry, but a psychologist now is about two hundred dollars an hour. If you don't have insurance. What the heck are you supposed to do? And I don't see anything from this government. I'm pretty sure I can recall Andrew Fury speaking out very directly about mental health in this province when he was running for election. And he quite openly said he was going to work on that issue in this province. I haven't seen it get better. I've seen it get worse for myself. I've, I went into crisis about three years ago, Fatty. And I was very fortunate. I, I, um, I had the mobile crisis response team show up my door, um, and the wheels worked the, the way they were supposed to work. I should not be without a psychiatrist. And I'm just one person. How many, and not just, <laughs> not just people of my age, I'm thinking of younger people as well who don't have, you know, the supports that, you know, we may have as adults. Uh, I, I don't see this system doing anything. 
I, 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 we should not have to wait years. Pardon me, I'm, I'm getting frustrated. Take, take your time. You're doing fine. We should, we should not, we should not have to wait years when every minute matters when you go into crisis uh, with mental health. And I speak from my own experience, and I speak for the experience of my loved ones and family members who are in the same boat. Uh, it's not acceptable, uh, and uh, this is why I want to meet with the minister. I want to have a conversation with the minister. Um, and, you know, this is not a, a trap or a trick or me trying to, you know, trap him into a corner. I want to sit down and I want to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the minister because I really feel the minister needs to truly see how this impacts the daily life for so many people in Western Newfoundland and the rest of this province. And you say you've lost four psychiatrists in the region, and I know it's one man, but this one man was a giant in the mental health uh, treatment world, and that's Dr. Nazir Lada, who passed away on holidays at the age of 80. Not only his advocacy work, but he had a pretty blocked patient roster. I don't know what kind of planning went into backfilling his shoes, which is a tall task for even one individual who is a psychiatrist, add to it, we've got a psychologist problem as well. So mm -hmm. we don't have enough psychologists to even do the mentorship required for licensing for the new, new graduates. Plus there's a problem inside the med school, or pardon me, the school of psychology as well. So we have got these things amping up. It's not that long ago where the numbers we would use for a mental health conversation was one in five Canadians have a mental illness, are struggling with their mental health, and do need, whether it be a psychologist, a counselor, or a psychiatrist. That number that's being used now is all of a sudden one in four, and that happened very, very quickly. And, you know, maybe some of that is the pressures brought to bear by the pandemic. Maybe we're just having a better understanding. Maybe because of conversation, more and more people are willing to come forward for a formal diagnosis and get the help that they need. But those numbers have changed. And consequently, if we needed... X number of mental health professionals five years ago, we need double it all of a sudden or somewhere near thereabouts. But the story as you painted is a very important subject and needs attention immediately. Now, I guess it falls into, and this is what we've been trying to achieve with mental health conversations, is that we need to talk about and think about and understand mental health just like we do physical health. So I guess the shortages are no different inside the mental health world, but there's a difference in the type of crisis that people might find themselves in and access to timely help. Uh, I don't know if this is a question that you wanted to answer, but feel free to not if, uh, if it's not comfortable. The blending of the crisis line into 811, for me, on the outside looking in, it felt like a smart thing to do. You know, now with the imposition of a national suicide mental health crisis line that's coming sometime this year, you know, just to make it an easy one. Because even our children know to call 911 when there's an emergency. So as opposed mm -hmm. to have to look up the crisis line number or whether you happen to be in a different province, what do you make of blending it into that one service? Uh, you know what? That's new to me. I, that's the first I've heard of that. And, oh, okay. Uh, I, I'm, I'm honestly not sure. I'd have to, I think I'd have to do my research on that before I answer that, Patty. No problem, Jordan. I, I'm really not sure. And I'm not sure either. And that's why, you yeah. know, we'll keep that conversation going because some people are applauding it with its ease and people will very quickly understand the, where to turn without having to go to the Internet or find a number. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of them out there, whether it be the warm line or the mental health crisis line or kids help, uh, kids help phone and wellness together. There was a lot out there. So maybe one envelope might be helpful, but it's only going to be helpful if it's effective and efficient. Uh, Jordan, final yeah. thoughts to you. Oh, final thoughts. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, 
wow, I really do feel like Jerry Springer now. <laughs> um, um, we need to do better. Um, lives depend on it. Um, people need psychiatrists. People need psychologists. And they cannot wait years. They cannot wait months. And in some cases, they cannot wait days. I was one of those people about three years ago. Um, I was in crisis. It, this is a new system to me, Patty. I always heard that, you know, the healthcare system was rough. Um, but in the last three years, but certainly the last year, I've really realized how rough it is. And my, when I had a psychiatrist over a year ago, um, they, they moved out west. Um, so that's why I lost my psychiatrist. Uh, at that time, before they left, they basically said, good luck. We're putting it back on your general practitioner's uh, plate. And see ya. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I still can't believe I'm without a psychiatrist, um, even though my doctor agrees that I sure have one. And again, I'm just one person. There are probably thousands like me. And I think that is wrong. I think that is an injustice in this province. Um, and it needs to be corrected. And it needs to be corrected last week. I appreciate your time. I hope you're well, Jordan. Thank you, Patty. Uh, today, uh, because I truly do take it one day at a time, today I'm feeling well. Thank you very much. Stay in touch. Yes, you as well. Take care, my friend. You too. Bye-bye. That's Jordan Stringer talking about psychiatry services in the western portion of the island, but of course that would extend throughout Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Aaron wants to talk about Francois Legault, the Premier of Quebec, the La Belle Province, here in the city of St. John's this evening. Talk about the Upper Churchill. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Aaron, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, just a couple of quick thoughts, Patty. i got to get out and shovel snow here this morning, yep. so I won't keep you too long. Uh, one with the Premier of Quebec coming now, 18 years out, so he must be concerned about something, right? He, if they don't make a deal, they're probably looking at building their own mega project, which they, I'm going to guess they don't want to get into. Uh, I think they might. I mean, Francois Legault, Premier Legault, he throws around Gull Island all the time, all the time. So that would really satisfy a lot of their needs in the future because the appetite for renewables, hydro included, whether it be in central Canada or the northeastern United States, is growing exponentially. So he does indeed talk about building more dams, and he does talk about Gull a lot. Yeah, it, but that's in Labrador. I'm talking about if he doesn't make a deal, he's got to figure out how to get power in Quebec itself, right, from some source. So I wouldn't, if I was a premier, I would seriously throw out there, like, why haven't... The premier's gotten together and demand that Quebec build a transmission corridor through Quebec that all provinces could tap into and out of. It's not just Quebec that's looking for power. Like I'm here in Ontario. I know Ontario is looking for more power, right? I work for the corporation up here, and we're buying power from the states, which isn't great. Uh, so that's just one thought. Like why? And to me, that should be at a federal level, pushing that that thought. Well, look, there's a there's an east-to-west uh, uh, corridor that's been long understood regarding all kinds of energy flow. Pipelines come to mind right off the bat. The federal government has been loath because of their political cowardness to 
ensure that power could flow freely or with some sort of minimal tariff to be paid to one province or another so that we can get the power where it's going. In the province of Ontario, if I remember correctly, between Ontario and Saskatchewan, they entered into some agreement for some small nuclear projects, which is also yeah. going to be part of the future. So you're right, the, the, the appetite and the thirst for renewables, especially hydro, as far as I can tell, is absolutely growing leaps and bounds in very close proximity markets. Now, there are, there are some problems. There was big plans by Hydro-Quebec to uh, provide power down to Maine. They had a referendum that shot it down, basically because of the transmission lines. Yeah, yeah, I agree. There's a, I know, and I, I believe, because I worked for Ontario Power Generation, and we had heard that the, the CEOs had come to help and consider, uh, with the Lower Churchill Project, consider and help pay for it if they could get the power, and Quebec would not agree to let the power pass through without them having full control. So I, I can't verify that, but that was a rumor within, the cor- within our corporation. Uh, and that would be a shame if that's true. This, the second thought, Patty, like I said, I can't stay long, is uh, with all this reading I've been doing about uh, concerns about getting the power to the island right now with the, through the underwater transmission, the software problems that they're having, there's an excess of power just sitting there. Is it, would that be a correct statement? Yes. I mean, they haven't been able to uh, flow the entirety of the Muskrat Falls power across the Labrador Island Link. There was a, there's one more 700 megawatt test coming. If that's a failure, we're going to have to wait till next year, next winter again, to try it again. So, yeah, there's still a continuing problem. So my thoughts is all this talk about flooding the islands with windmills, I mean everywhere, six acres per windmill of land tore up and the destruction to, to bird life. Like, I'm not a big and major environmentalist, but I do have concerns about stuff like that. My thoughts are, with all that excess power, why not build hydrogen generating stations on the lower coast of uh, Labrador or even along the coast of Quebec, come up with a deal that's beneficial to both provinces? Yeah, that's going to be driven by the private sector, I would assume, at this moment. And, you know, someone made comments during the preamble that, you know, why are we so worried about hydro when we've got all these potential wind projects in the offing? The issue there is the vast majority of the current proposals are for export, you know, selling excess power back to the grid, which would only be dribs and drabs as opposed to replacing Holyrood or the no need for an eighth of turbine out of Bay Despair or to complete the Muskrat Falls transmission woes. But, yeah, those wind projects and the hydrogen issue, all of it's for export uh, at this moment of time. Now, there's only a couple that we know a whole lot about. The one yesterday, Exploits, and, of course, out in the Port of Port Peninsula, but they're exporting that power. But I think we have to look at everything, right? Uh, and, of course, yeah. we do. So if we're going to put all our eggs in one basket, uh, it always turns out the same way for any province and any industry. If you get hyper-focused on one, you probably lose opportunities that were in your peripheral vision. I can't help but think the dam is there. There's excess power. You use it. Yeah, uh, sure. Whether it be to... Uh, lure industry to uh, Labrador or anywhere else in the province, yep. power is one of the big considerations, you know, in, in addition to proximity to market. I uh, appreciate the time this morning, Aaron. Get out there and shovel us now. Yeah, just one quick comment. If you don't present to Quebec that you have options with the power other than them, they're going to exploit you again. Yeah, let's hope we got our best and brightest uh, making sure that you know, we need a win here. You know, uh, Premier Legault talks about mutually beneficial and that kind of stuff. I think that's probably always a, a smart way to entertain the, uh, negotiations. But the people in this province, I think in a political in political speaking, we need to feel like we get a win out of this. We really Absolutely. do. And I know that Premier Fury and Mr. Paddock or anybody else, 
they can read the temperature in the political room here. We need to feel like we got a win. Yeah, and yeah. I want to come home. And I want to come home. Come on home. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye. I think that's, you know, negotiations, there's give and take. There's to and fro. Mutual benefit is always going to be, I think, a reasonable goal. But no doubt about it. Whether it be some redress for the old 69 agreement and or anything going forward, we need to feel like we had the upper hand. We need to feel like there's some semblance of a win. Now, that's not always the smartest way to enter that conversation, but I think the people of the province really feel like that and really need that. Let's go to line number 10 and say good morning to the president of the Stadium Partners NL Incorporated. That's Jack Lee. Morning, Jack. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, thank you. How about you? I'm good. You know, digging out for a little bit of snow, but it could be worse. Yeah, well, it could be, and there's a lot of it out there. So, a lot of stuff going on in your sphere, including the proposed multi-purpose venue that you're going to call the Galway Ice Fields, of course, located out in Galway. Brad Guzhu made it to the airwaves a couple of days ago, talked about the pending closure of Ballyhaley and consequently the Ballyhaley Curling Club. So, you're stepping in and had some conversations. Where do they lie? Well, Pat, you know, when when Bally Haley, you know, they sort of sold their, I guess they not sort of, they did sell their property now to or, or swap it off with the, with the Club Valley. Uh, so at the end of the day, you know, we, we just had some conversation with St. John's Curling Club and the Newfoundland Curling Association and Brad Goju. And uh, so, you know, we think that we could accommodate that in our project easy enough and that would be a home for you know, these these needed sheets of uh, curling sheets. Uh, and the reason why that is because <clears throat> the project that we're included, we're doing is like has four pads with the four ice rinks, plus, the you know, the mechanical part of it and the refrigeration part will be able to accommodate the sheets of uh, curling ice that has been needed uh, with the closure of Valley Haley. And, you know, with the aging of uh, Remax, I'm sure that, uh, you know, that would help relieve some of that pressure when they're because they're pretty busy yeah and the the location somewhere in the west end <laughs> galway or otherwise would be helpful as well to spread it around uh, what's the status of the proposed plan anyway with your multi-purpose venue where are we well Pat, you know we we were still plugging along and certainly the two years of COVID didn't help with our with our you know planning and and moving forward but as we've met with all levels of government have since 2020 and, uh, you know, have certainly great conversations and great support. And there's never a question if the need is a question, how do we get it done? You know, I've engaged with a group out of Saskatoon and a group out of Ontario. <clears throat> New Stadia is a group out of Ontario that they build and operate these facilities. They don't own them. And <clears throat> the group out of Saskatoon is a, is a professional fundraising group. So we've been, we've been actively involved with that part and actively involved with conversations with all levels of government. <clears throat> and certainly had a lot of positive uh, feedback from every level of government. And to say that this is going to start tomorrow, I wish I could, but I can't. But certainly we're getting closer to a commitment on all levels of what I just spoke about. And you've got the land secured? Yes, we do. What's the price tag? Uh, for the whole facility, yeah. I would think between 80 and $85 million. <clears throat> Who are your partners? Partners, well, you know, the, part, the partners, myself, and, you know, and, well, Danny Williams donated the land, and there's other private individuals that have been involved. But, you know, we, we're hoping to um, engage uh, some 
some funding from government for one-time deal. And uh, in regards to the other partners, this time I wouldn't be able to, to get into any more than that. Yeah, I understood. I didn't expect an answer, Perry, to that one, Jack, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> so at some point, you know, discussions with... Uh, private funding or government funding and with Mr. Williams and uh, everything else, all the moving parts. What's a timeline for make or break? Because, of course, you and everybody else, there's lots of things in this world, lots of opportunities. So, of course, it takes a long time to get something with an $85 billion million price tag uh, settled. But when it's a timeline where you're going to say, okay, we've reached the end of the road, we're building, or we've reached the end of the road, we have to walk away? I would say within the next six months. Okay. Right, uh, you know, you know, our goal was to to be started this this summer coming, and uh, and have the facility completed before the 2025 Canada Games because they they could certainly use that facility to accommodate some of the sports that would be coming from all over the country. So that that that's the, that was the original goal, and hopefully that's still on our, our calendar to be successful. But at the end of the day, there's there is some moving parts, Pat, and they all have to come together. And certainly, you know, the last three years with, with every other challenge in the world, uh, that hasn't helped the process for sure. Appreciate the time, Jack. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jack Lee. He's the uh, president of Stadium Partners, NL Inc. Let's take a break. Do not go away. Oh, this is a good one. So we're going to hear about some of Mr. Brazel's comments regarding the Churchill Falls discussions, negotiations, whatever it is. And Jim Hines. Jim Hines was right there at the beginning of bringing in the mental health Portuguese water dog support animal, Stella. And the question being posed is, where is Stella? Jim Hines, right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Jim Hines. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, thanks, Jim. How are you doing? Not too bad, Patty. Uh, I've listened to your preamble yesterday, Patty. You spoke about where is Stella and RNC and my involvement in uh, helping out you know, the vulnerable people in society. So I just want to give you a quick call. And uh, as you know, I mean, I'm a big-time dog person, big animal lover. So, uh, you know, in... 2015, I reached out to the RNC through a friend of mine, a retired RNC officer, about getting involved in the canine unit. And uh, they had the best dogs and the best handlers, but, I mean, they were needed equipment. Now, people don't realize these dogs, majority of the calls they get is to help the vulnerable people in our society. You know, and that's people who are lost, people got dementia, people are just not having a good day, and, you know, and they could possibly harm themselves. So I wanted to give them the best gear available, out there so they could do their job safer, faster, and be more effective for for the the mental health people and the vulnerable people in our society, which I did. And in short order, they by far were the best canine unit in Canada. Short time later, uh, Chief Bowman reached out to me and said they were looking at getting a support dog. And at the same time, COVID was coming down. And I said, I wanted to do more, you know, and was a perfect fit for me. And they're going to get a support dog. He had an injured officer who uh, needed some help, and plus it was perfect timing as, as i seen it, and I f- fully funded Stella, the, the, the support dog. Short, shortly after that, I got involved and helped them move the mountain unit up because up from Government House because the veterinarian said that the air quality in the barn wasn't great and you needed more exercise, so I, I, I did that. Now, when Stella came on board, Immediately, the kids' helpline went up three times the amount of calls. You know, it was for women in our vulnerable population, Stella Circle, you know, and partnering with victim services to provide in-court support and assist victims with anxiety and stress while testifying for forensic interviewing. You know, and also 
Stella, for seniors, loneliness, dementia, and, and public care. Like, and during uh, COVID, Patty, as we know, I mean, people spend a lot of time alone, and animals probably the only thing they had. So that little dog done so much for the community and was well, well fitted for what was going on in our community. Uh, after I got involved and helped out the, uh, rain, uh, the mountain unit move up the Rainbow Rodders for the winter, short time later, they... Uh, there was a requirement, uh, they were looking for someone with the Pony Society and with RNC to help bring in a couple of Newfoundland ponies into the uh, mounted unit for equine therapy, which I thought was another perfect fit for me. I signed an MOU with the RNC, uh, myself and, and the, the Pony Society, that I would indefinitely fund the equine therapy for, for uh, the RNC. Now, all this was done for the first responders. It was done for the community. And it was done for the vulnerable people in our community. And now, uh, it was in eight, August of 21 that I provided the ponies, and it was announced down at Government House. And you know, a Government House is open to the public. You know, it's not you don't have to make an appointment, come down, see the horse, or see the ponies. You can come down there. It's open to the public, and it, it was it was a great fit for me. Last November. I received a call that the ponies are back. Like, we're done with the ponies, and they were there 15 months, cost me $25,000, and they did absolutely zero equine therapy. They did absolutely nothing, these ponies. Uh, I, when this was going on, I reached out in the fall of 21, spoke to Minister Hogan, and I expressed my concern that there had been a change of management at the, at the chief's office, and I was very concerned all these programs for the community were going to be torn down. Uh, he indicated to me that that would not be the case, and we left it at that. I had several other phone calls and uh, uh, with him, and I also spoke with the deputy minister and actually met him in person in uh, June of last year, but it didn't work out that way. Last January, I got a call from the from the canine unit said they were no longer having anything else to do with me or couldn't accept anything else. And the same thing with the mounted unit and same thing with Stella. So, I mean, I, you know, when you go to help out the, you know, in, in an organization like the police, you just don't show up and give them a bunch of stuff. I mean, there's a process. And the process was, I mean, they would contact me with with a, a want and i would uh, say i do it then you had to go get the possible approvals even had to go to a treasury board like the vehicle for stella i mean there's just a processes with this and all that was done everything i've done here patty i never done it for chief james i never done it for chief Boland, and i never done it for chief roach i did it for the vulnerable people in our community that these animals through the rnc were doing super work and now it is all torn down and i mean uh, the, the, this stella is doing absolutely nothing staying in, inside the, the doors at the RNC, and it's an absolute shame. I mean, I invested, I never invested in the RNC, I invested in my community, you know. And I'm only one person, and I'm doing a little bit, but you know, something, Patty, if everyone done a little bit, it wouldn't be a big bit. And it's absolutely, you know, and I knew that this is going to be in trouble, that's why I called up the minister because Chief Roach told me that he considered. Stella to be the RNC mascot, and I thought that was absolutely disgraceful, and I knew these, this program was in trouble. I try to, you know, read between lines and try to get to the bottom of things as best I can, but I cannot for the life of me understand why, in particular, 
Stella and Krista Fagan around the sidelines. I just don't get it. I think there's a little bit more to the story with the equine therapy, but this one here, this has not only been extremely beneficial. We're talking about not only supports for vulnerable people in our society, all the way from Stella participating in the D.A.R.E. program, which is a, a, a drug program for school-aged children, Choices for Youth, Tim Horton's Smile Cookie Day, whatever the case may be. This also goes a long way for the general public to build a better rapport between the RNC and the public because trust and faith and respect for law enforcement has been eroding over the last little bit. There's reasons why. Some of that maybe bleeds into our consciousness from the south of the border. But when the RNC are seen in that community policing light, and especially with the good work that Krista and Stella did, which I saw up close and personal, I can't understand because it's not a budgetary item because that's been covered. It's not whether or not it's worked because it demonstrably has. So do you have any inkling as to why this has happened? I mean, is this something personal, do you think, between yourself and the chief? Because I think that relationship became quite contentious. You know, you were having to answer questions about whether or not you were involved in operations, of course, which you were not. So why do you think this happened? Patty, you know, like, operational stuff in Darrency, like, I, it doesn't matter to Jim Hines, who is the chief of police at Darrency, I wanted to do good for the community here. This, this officer, Krista Fagan, was injured. This little dog gave her a new life. And her new life was a bonus to the community. And that, every time you've seen that little dog, every picture, you've seen that officer with a smile on her face. You know, and the smiles that that, that dog brought to the homes that it went to, people who were sick. I mean, and, and down the victim services, I mean, it, you know, Stella went down to court and there was, there was a, a case where the, you know, she, when the, the child was crying, Stella was licking the tears off, off her face. I mean, uh, off his or her face. I'm not sure what it was. But, I mean, there's something definitely wrong here. I mean, I barely know Chief Roach. I met, met him a couple of times. But, I mean, obviously, there's, like, everything that Joe Boland done here, as far as I'm concerned, with the mental health of our community and health of our community is being torn down, including equine therapy. I mean, like, I inherited a pony and I'm paying for it for now. Like, uh, a pony's not something you can have just in your house, right? So, I mean, why is it all torn down, Patty? It'd be a good, really good question for, for, uh, for, for Minister Hogan because, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, this is a government-run police force. He's the justice minister. That makes him the boss, and the buck stops right there. 100%. Now, the minister will say that you know, operational responsibilities lie solely with the leadership at the RNC, but it's bigger than this. You know, and I don't want to trivialize the initial thought as to why Stella would be important and the equine therapy program would be important, because there's people who need it, desperately, whether yes. it be members of the RNC that. themselves or the public. But the whole concept of, you know, 100,000 feet above sea level, the RNC needs some good news. They need some good news stories yeah. because there's been lots of issues that have really rattled the best and the brightest inside the ranks with some bad apples and some bad stories and all the way to uh, RNC officers convicted of sexual assault and many other being accused of it and up and down the line. So this type of stuff just compounds what is already problematic world out there for the RNC, and it does help build rapport. And Stella, I don't know anything about the equine therapy program, but I've been in the room with Krista Fagan and Stella, and the impact is immediate and it's real and it's right there for all to see. So I cannot understand this for the life of me, but I'm going to invite both Captain Roach, or pardon me, Chief Roach and Minister Hogan on to help, me, to help us try to understand why they've looked the proverbial gift horse in the mouth, and why they think they're pulling back a support for the community that was working. I just cannot understand it for the life of me. Uh, Jim, final thoughts to no. you, sir. 
Yeah, but we know, like Patty, like the RNC is a big corporation. Yep. You know, it's over 400 officers there, you know, and there, there is some bad cats in every organization. That's just like, you know, it's a big, it's a big organization, it's a big business. But, you know, most of the RNC officers are good, hard-working people, and you see horrific scenes every single day. But you know something? No matter what happens in society, they call 911, and who shows up? The police. No matter how bad it is, they're going to show up. So they're showing up with tools that I gave them to help the people who are vulnerable and people with mental health, and to, to tear all that down and, and let the community suffer is absolutely appalling to me. And uh, Patty, I don't care about the money. I mean, I just care about the community, and it's absolutely appalling. Jim, we appreciate the good work you're doing out there, and I certainly appreciate your time this morning. We'll follow up as best we can. Thanks a lot, Patty. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. It's Jim Hines, the man behind bringing Stella to bear. He covered all the cost. And further investment in the canine unit and the equine therapy. I just, <laughs> I don't know. You know, sometimes you can get an inkling as to why something happened. Personal conflict or a, a change of direction, and a policy adjustment. But this one is absolutely mind-boggling. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to speak with Ken. He wants to talk about comments made by the uh, PC uh, leader, the official opposition leader, David Brazel, regarding the Churchill Falls meetings that take place here in Confederation Building beginning this evening and into tomorrow. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number one. Ken, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty Daly. How are you? Not too bad, sir. How are you doing? I'm uh, not too bad. I'm warmed up now. Um, I was out this morning for about an hour shoveling snow, and to get a little bit of a break from the cold wind, I, I got in my truck and I turned on VOCM, and I, I heard I heard an interview by Dave Brazel as leader of the opposition. To be honest with you, uh, except I was in the truck, I, I, I would have hurled, I would have thrown up to listen to him talk about what needs to be done in terms of the renegotiation of Churchill, Churchill Falls contract. Patty, Newfoundland and Labrador citizens have been victims of two mega projects that have really had a tremendous impact on us. One is the Churchill Falls uh, project, and of course, the other one is Muskrat Falls. Churchill Falls is a case of where we didn't get revenues that we should have gotten. And based on the figure that Quebec got about $30 billion from Churchill Falls so far, I guess we missed out on getting $15 billion if we were to get half of that. In the case of Muskrat Falls, it cost us Fifteen billion dollars, and Dave Brazel was a puppet in the Danny Williams regime. Sat at his desk and put his hand up and said "aye" to sanctioning the Muskrat Falls project. Uh, he spoke eloquently in the House about the benefits of the project, and we all know if anybody was watching when uh, when Justice Richard Lamont was doing the uh, Muskrat Falls inquiry, and we saw his final report. Muskrat Falls was an absolute sham. It was a boondoggle. And Dave Brazel was part of that. So where does he get the credibility and the integrity and the honesty to get on as leader of the opposition now and demand of this present government about being open and transparent and accountable when he sat in the House of Assembly and was part of the sanctioning of a project that has had a hundred times a negative impact on us here as the Churchill Falls. i got to be honest, Patty, it, it turned my stomach, and I'm sick and tired of hearing politicians expound on things, say one thing and do another. Uh, you know, uh, what's her name, Green, who did that report, the PERT report, talked about Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest problem is its governance. And when we get politicians who can be in power and do stupid things, and then when they get in the opposition, criticize other people, 
then that's the height of hypocrisy in politics that's yeah. hurting this province. Yeah, it was Moya Green, of course, uh, the Green yes. Report, which we got to look at. Uh, you know, when we talk about transparency, I'd like to have a look at that Rothschild report as well. But there's yes. no defending the PCs regarding Muscar Falls. They're simply not, right? I mean, it was no. their project, and that's that. Now, the Liberals followed through. There was opportunities for then-Premier Ball to put the brakes on, but nobody did. All three political parties had some inkling as to why they were going to support one facet or another, whether it be jobs or whatever else. But, and this is not defending anyone, but I would ask this question. Did everybody who was an elected member of the Progressive Conservative Party at that time have all the information that came to pass after the inquiries took place? I think not only did the general public get hoodwinked, but I think some members of the government and opposition parties got hoodwinked as well. I mean, look no further in some of those emails coming from Nalcor or internal emails saying, don't tell them this, don't tell them that. You know, it was just shocking what went on. There's no explanation to me as to why there were some heads rolling, as people like to say, because I, 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 I think the hoodwink was pretty wide, uh, widespread, whether it be with us uh, or the media or even members of government. Exactly right. Patty, I totally agree with you. Everybody got hoodwinked. We all got hoodwinked by Danny Williams. Let me say that again. Newfoundlanders, the people in his party, his ministers, people in his caucus were hoodwinked by Danny Williams. I mean... You know, it's, it's evident now, the proof is in the pudding, Muskrat Falls is still not working. The, the Justice LeBlanc report, I mean, it, it actually condemned the way this whole project unfolded. So clearly, people made a mistake. But you know something, Patty? It's one thing for citizens like you and I uh, to be hoodwinked. But if I'm a politician, if I'm an elected member of the House of Assembly, it is my job, it is my responsibility to do due diligence. It's also my obligation to be open and transparent. So for them to get duped, and by the way, they all weren't duped. They just were a typical little sheep in, in Danny Williams' uh, carcass, and they just followed along. They did not do their due diligence. Dave Brazel did not do his diligence. Uh, if, if information was missing, they should have recognized that. And by the way, he's demanding openness and, and accountability and transparency at the time when many people in Newfoundland and Labrador were criticizing Muskrat Files. Uh, people like Danny Williams ostracized them. He insulted them. He basically told them to shut up. I didn't hear Dave Brathel stand up then and say, but now hold on, Mr. Williams. We've got to allow people to be, to be questioning what's going on here. So I just find the whole thing is the heights of hypocrisy. And then when I see the three people that are running for the PC leadership, and by the way, I'm going to say this now. I have not heard one PC former minister or PC caucus member who agreed with the sanction of Muskrat Files say anything negative about Muskrat Files. People like that owe Newfoundland and Labradorians an apology because they participated in the sham and they sanctioned it. It was their responsibility to protect Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. And now we've got three people running for the, uh, for the leadership of the PC party. And every time a media talks to them, I don't hear one media person. I don't hear anybody saying, oh, by the way, Mr. Manning or Mr. Wakem or Mr. Parrott, what do you think of your party's uh, record in terms of uh, sanctioning the worst project that Newfoundland and Labradorians have ever had? What's your say on that? Yeah, okay. Until we start doing that, we're not going to make people accountable about it. Fair enough. But I mean, what? What? Let's say for I'll just use myself because you're talking to me. What do I get out of asking Tony Wakem, who wasn't part of government, about what happened before he was a member? You know, same thing with Lloyd Parrott, same thing with Eugene Manning. It's fine to ask it of David Brazel. It's fine to even ask it of Paul Lane. It's fine to ask it of people who were there. But, like, I've thought about that many times. But I can indeed ask questions like, for instance, if we're talking about transparency, 
the beginning of the unraveling of the PCs and the seated government, for me, was Bill 29. At that point, people said, yes, yes, we don't trust sure. you because you did it to yeah. yourself. It was draconian yes. legislation. Imagine talking about, uh, what was it, f- fixatious and whatever <laughs> other foolishness yeah. that they yeah. labeled that as. So I think that was the beginning of the end. But like, I, I don't even know what to ask Tony Wakeham about Muscrat because he wasn't a government official. It's fine for me to ask Brazil, and I'm happy to do it, especially and, and when we talk great. about the contradiction between what he wants from the Churchill Falls negotiations or discussions whatever the hell they are, uh, versus Moscow. Uh, no problem. Yeah, Patty, I, I totally agree. And let me just correct myself a little bit then. I didn't. I certainly wasn't suggesting that the three people now running for the PC leadership or any new PC MHA now in the House of Assembly, they don't owe us an apology, but I'd like to hear them own up to the fact that their party uh, was responsible for the worst mega project Newfoundland and Labrador ever experienced. The people who were, who were part of the sanctioning, they're the ones that owe an apology. And how can you have someone who sanctioned it now criticize a government of how to deal with a mega project and how to deal with the renegotiation of the Churchill Falls contract. It, it just it just goes to the whole point of governance and how Newfoundlanders and Labrador were hoodwinked, were hoodwinked by someone. And typically we're hoodwinked by politicians who are shysters, who tell lies, who say one thing when they're not in power and then do the exact opposite when they get in power. And until people like you and I and the media start calling some of these politicians for the bullshit they get on with, then Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are never going to get out of trouble. Uh, and I, I, it's honestly, it just, uh, you know, I have so much to do today, but I, I just, I just, I, I started to shake when I heard him talk about what, what needs to be done, what this government has to do when he didn't do it when he was in power. Now, he might say he's doing his job. But when people do their job, they're supposed to have integrity and credibility. And there is none in any PC member now who was part of sanctioning Muskrat Files, they should apologize and then shut them out and go away and leave Newfoundland and Labrador alone. And, you know, the contrast between the Upper Churchill and Muskrat, the Upper Churchill built on time, on schedule, on budget, and, yeah, everyone knows the... It didn't cost us us one cent. It didn't cost us one cent. Unfortunately, yeah, we didn't get about $15 billion we should have gotten in revenues from Churchill Falls. But in the case of Muskrat Falls, I mean, look, we don't even know what impact that's going to have on future generations. But we, it cost us $15 billion. I'd be ashamed. If I was leader of the opposition, I'd be ashamed to be on the air and try to criticize somebody else. Get real. Tony Wickham's office has out a news release this morning about these negotiations or whatever. Talk about the Mm -hmm. secretiveness. Look, I always want as much info, and I do the best I can to try to get information out of politicians and call them out where I see fit. But I really don't know what the opposition is getting at here. We can leave Brazil out of the equation because that's muddied with Muskrat. But even Mr. Wakeham, what exactly are they expecting for details prior to or after? Because I I don't see a deal being struck here tomorrow. I mean, I I think that would be foolhardy to view it that way. But what exactly, what should we be disclosing which might jeopardize our hand? I think that's always a fair concern for commercial sensitivities. I don't think I'd need to see the 2041 report until negotiations are underway or undertaken. But the trick for me would be when they come up with an understanding, with a deal in principle, then I think we all deserve to know every single thing about it before pen hits paper. You know, but up until then, True. I really don't True. know what people expect for info because let's just say to wet the whistle or to satisfy the appetite of the general public and or the PCs or the NDP, 
What happens if that just backfires on us? That sounds like a, a stupid idea that, to that's me. That's exactly right. So, well, for, the, for the three people running for the leadership now, Patty, they're just making noise. I mean, there's, this is just an initial meeting between two premiers. As you said, there's not going to be a deal signed today or tomorrow or the next three or four months. This is an, an, initial, an initial meeting to kind of get the ball rolling. So anybody talking about this now who's a PC leader is just making some noise to get some attention. That, that's the way I see it. And, and sometimes that's, you know, opposition to that's sort of part and parcel with their sure. job, even though I think it's critically yeah. important. But before this deal is signed in full and completed, finalized and put to bed, we absolutely should hear every single moving part, a full-on debate in the House of Assembly. The general public should be informed as much as possible before we make any moves here. You know, up until then, not so sure. Anyway. Yeah, totally agree. And and, and just to to close off, I I just want to, I'd like to see, uh, is is it just me? I'd love to see other people phone in and talk a little bit about the credibility of politicians and about how they say one thing when they're in opposition, but doing the exact opposite thing when they're in power. Uh, I mean, this thing about role playing, there has to be credibility and honesty and integrity no matter what position you're in in politics, whether you're an opposition member or you're a government member. So I, I, I just love to know if there's anybody else out there who curdled. Uh, when they heard Dave Brazel talking this morning. Anyway, really, thanks for the opportunity, Patty. I got it off my chest. Appreciate it. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Ken. Take care. All right, bye. bye-bye. I mean, I don't know what would be beneficial to know before the conversation is over, the discussion, negotiation, but I do think that the opposition and most, I would suggest most people in the province, before it's a done deal, we really should be in the know for sure. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Will I take Laura Bell before the break, Dave? What do you want me to do? Break? Take a break? Okay, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Laura Bell Lemba. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thanks for having me. Happy to do it. Um, so I'm calling because um, I've gotten a lot of feedback about Race to Dinner in Newfoundland Labrador, and I was invited on to talk to you about a little bit about what that is. Uh, go right ahead. Tell us about it. So Race to Dinner in Newfoundland Labrador was originally started, the original Race to Dinner was started in the U.S. by Regina Jackson and Saria Rowe, who are two racialized women who have dinner parties that get white women to sit down and talk openly about race, racism, and white supremacy. And they recently released a documentary last year um, in around November on CBC Gem called Deconstructing Karen. I happened to watch that documentary, was inspired by what they are doing in the U.S., and they were offering a training, and I took part in their training and was able to launch Race to Dinner here within Newfoundland Labrador. And then we aired on CBC right now, airing on here now, our episodes about a session we did with them, and people are getting a chance to see what racism actually looks like within our province, and people are openly talking about how racism shows up within our province. And it's sometimes a very difficult conversation for people to have. And so that's what the general topic of it is about. The, I mean, the conversation regarding whether it be sex or religion or racism or what have you has been taboo for such a long time. Thankfully, things are changing somewhat on that front. How do you start the conversation? Because that's always been the trick, isn't it? You know, if people thought it was taboo and it was too awkward or emotional to, to talk about, then many people were, were unwilling to entertain even the conversation itself, even at the fundamental level. So how do you start the conversation? Um, for me and for a lot of racialized people, we start it because it's based on experiences. It's based on things we're experiencing, and we need to talk about the things we're experiencing. So the first is talking about what happens to us, the ways racism affects us, the ways it shows up in our life, not just in overt incidents, but the way systemic and systematic racism shows up in our society and what that means for us going through life. 
and just about being open and honest about experiences and having non-racialized people accept that these are realities and not hit us back with, oh, I've never seen it, so it's not real. What's the uptake and the interest level? So far, we've had a pretty decent uptake. A lot of people are still finding it a little difficult to have these conversations. So in order to make it easier for people, we're hosting a first session where people, if you're not ready to have these with your family and friends and get a dinner party together, you're able to attend one and then have it with other people who feel like they're ready for those conversations. And the first one is taking place at the rooms on March 3rd, and people are able to contact the rooms to get their ticket and be able to join that event. It is, what we do let people know, it is a small seating, so it's no more than 10 people. And it's done this way because when we do a lot of anti-racism and diversity and equity training, it's a lot of being talked at. So this is one where it's a conversation where people openly have to share and speak and be part of the conversation because if you just continue to take information in and you don't figure out how to actually use it applicably in society, it's not doing anything. What do people have to do if they would like to be involved? Um, so they just have to call the rooms. If they want to be involved on the March 3rd session, I will let people know it is just for that session. It's just for women and gender diverse individuals. They just have to call the rooms and reserve their seat. It is $85 and it is comes with meal as well. And a two-hour facilitation with me and a co-facilitator. Appreciate the time, Laura Bell. Good luck with the event. Let us know how it goes. Thank you. No problem. Take good care. Okay, bye-bye. It's Laura Bell. Imba, the race to dinner. Coming up with the rooms the 3rd of March. Let's go to line number three. Chris, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you today? Doing fine, thanks. How about you? Oh, I'm doing good, thank you. Um, so I, I just wanted to... to uh, do a little bit of an update on uh, Carl Diamond and the Stephenville Airport, um, which is, uh, I, I think you would agree, is a very strange situation at the moment. No question. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so there are a couple just like strange tidbits that are floating around that um, haven't um, kind of been commented on yet. And, and you know, Carl is off the radar and Stephenville Airport Corporation is off the radar. Um but just further strangeness that uh, I think is, you know, uh, worthy to consider in light of uh, hoodwinkery. That, uh, Such as? Well, so um, uh, uh, the biggest strangeness that I think is going on right now is what's happening with the cost to the airport. Um, so they're, the, the kind of piecemeal approach that the town has been taking is doing these $50,000 payments, um, but that is not sustainable in the long run. Um, they don't have the, the cash to do it. They aren't able to do a loan. Um, so it is my understanding there's discussions of this initial line of credit, the 900000 one, being presented back to the provincial government um, in order to keep the airport open uh, before the purchase. Yeah, well, the government says they're walking away from that line of credit. Uh, and and that's my understanding as well. Um, uh, but it is perhaps going to be presented that uh, it may need to be revisited because if the sale doesn't go through, then uh, the ability for the airport to operate at all would be in jeopardy. Possibly. My thoughts on this one, look, look, there's lots of strange twists and turns and where Mr. Diamond is now. And, you know, even on the website, changing the name of the airport to the Diamond Stephenville Airport or whatever the name is. And then, you know, some of his own 
past in business and whether or not people are trying to chase down where his offices were to find them non-existent. All of those types of things lead people to be quite skeptical, to say the very least, about this project. The only thing that I've said about it is, as long as it's not costing the airport dearly, as long as it's not costing me any money, you know, letting it play out doesn't have a whole lot of downside to the province. So... You know, and like if that was my money, and if we all of a sudden had a joint partnership or matching dollars or whatever, you know, real provincial government money involvement, then I think we should all be screaming from the rooftops. But until that becomes reality or the airport, the reputation and or their ability to operate becomes severely damaged, I'm not sure what to say about it other than I got questions and I'll believe it when I see it. And, and you know, that's, that's really fair. And, and I think with a lot of these aspirational projects, where there's not a clear ask for money, it is you know kind of kind of hard to say. Well, why why wouldn't we at least look at it or spend time on it or let them spend their time and their money on it? Um, but I guess the the cost that it is being incurred is in this um, this loss in management time. So we do know that the town of Stephenville is spending resources. Uh, you know, Tom is working really hard to try and make it happen. So that is, you know, a municipal employee spending their time and energy and then in turn city budget in order to further this particular project rather than the airport generally. Um, I, I, I do have a couple other like little strange things just to just to toss on. Sure. Go ahead. <laughs> um, uh, so um, uh, on Diamond's uh, LinkedIn page, uh, they have a financial service officer. Uh, which of course sounds very official and moneyed, and they have what's called a Q L L Q P, which again, you know, sounds like okay, that's someone that can manage money. Um, uh, it turns out they are in fact uh, licensed to sell insurance, um, life insurance in particular. But that's what L L Q P means, period, isn't it? Life license qualification program, isn't that what that acronym is? Yeah, yeah, correct, correct. Okay. Um, and so that seems to be the only person um, <laughs> with with a kind of uh, financial um, background uh, in the Diamond Aerospace Company, um, and it is insurance, which seems bizarre. Um, and apparently the bankruptcy was resolved back in November. I heard that as well, but I just simply cannot get confirmation, which I'm unsure why, because if there's a final ruling in place and that... Uh, insolvency has been settled, then why can't anyone just tell me plain and simple, yes or no? Well, well, I mean, they can. They are choosing not to. That's and, what I meant, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, I, I mean, you know, to, to hear reports is one thing, but there is a document that's floating around on Twitter, and, like, I know, sus, but uh, it does bear all the trimmings of uh, the federal government. It has... Uh, EY and a particular auditor associated with it. Uh, now, of course, it's it's a proper and good policy for them to not comment on the, the business affairs that they do, and that's very reasonable. Um, but I think it's kind of at a point where the strangeness is, you know, it kind of can't really be ignored, if if only for the you know waste of of time and potential that the town is occurring. Yeah, and they have this, the town of Stephenville, if I remember correctly, went ahead and put another $50,000 recently into the airport authority for continued operations. 
I guess we'll all find out at the same time. You know, I would, I think the majority of people out there think that this is all nonsense and will never happen. Uh, so be it. I, you know, I know there's some leadership in Stephenville, including the mayor, that thinks this is still a reality and will happen, and the economic boom that it will bring to bear. Like, even if it wasn't any big, massive increase in frequency of flights at Stephenville Airport, even if it was just the cargo manufacturer of the drones that were part of his proposal, even if just that happened, that would be some sort of a win, but I have no idea. At this moment, I'm as skeptical as anybody else is, and there's been lots of very bizarre twists and turns in this uh, Stephenville Airport saga. So, yeah, lots of it's kind of pretty strange. And and even on the, on the large drone side of things, there is... There is further, further strangeness. Like the the numbers that Carlos suggested, his drones are flying, are you, you know, they're they're fantasy. Um, you know, uh, currently, I think the the biggest drone carrying stuff around in Canada is the Robin by uh, Drone Delivery Canada. And they're carrying twenty five pounds um, and going sixty kilometers. You know, so that that's sort of where practical real drone delivery is right now um and so you know the idea that uh several orders of magnitude will be breached and uh you know it'll be fifty-five thousand or whatever it is uh pounds going a thousand nautical miles it it at this moment it's unrealistic i did indeed uh try to figure out a bit more about the uh, improvements and expansion and scope and capability of drones is and there's lots of companies working towards much bigger drones with much bigger payloads to be able to fly further distances i don't think anything that i've read lines up with some of the things we heard about these proposed drones but they are getting bigger and better and faster with longer range but not that not not, not nowhere near what he's talking about well there there is actually uh, one that is hitting the right numbers um and that's uh, uh, Nautilus Aerospace. Where's that um, being based? built? Uh, well, they're based out of California, okay. um, and they are partnered up with Volantis, um, which is a, a, a much larger established um, aerospace company. Um, and they even have um, uh, Transport Canada drone licensing for uh, cargo distribution. Um, and uh, peculiar on top of that, um, in uh, their last big announcement of um, funding and uh, potential sales, you know, $6 billion, and half a billion of those potential sales came from Diamond Aerospace, suggesting he would be buying uh, an unspecified number of their large-sized cargo drones. Um, Interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, and and now they are only at prototyping on their smallest one. They have a a range of sizes. Um, they're you know not flying, um, but they are collecting capital. Uh, they do have partners that have infrastructure and cash and experience. Um, so, but yeah, I'm I'm super not an aerospace engineer so like but just from the 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 kind of cursory look at things um uh, that level of thing does exist and carl suggested he would buy it and spend a half billion dollars on it um which is again just super weird 
Appreciate the time this morning, Chris. Thanks very much. I'll have a look at the Nautilus business. Cool, man. You have a good day, Patty. Thank you. you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, break time. When we come back, carbon tax in the queue. Also, the cost of food took away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number five. Brian, you're on the air. Uh, Good morning. Morning. Good morning. Yes, sir. Good morning to you. Yeah, first time caller. Terrific. Welcome. Yeah, uh, my concern, sir, is... um, I've been monitoring this this past year. Uh, I go to the store every couple of weeks to get our groceries, and the price of food just keeps going up a little bit out of time. Uh, but the cost of diesel, when it, I was told that because of the cost of transportation, the diesel is why the food goes up. Uh, when the price of diesel goes up, so do the food. Well, that's understandable. But what I don't understand is why is it when, like the diesel dropped down four cents yesterday, the price of food did not drop down. It's not adjusting. It's not going back. You know, if the price of diesel went down 10 cents, the price of food stays where it's at. When the diesel goes up again, it'll they'll jump it up again. Why is that? I Well, of course, the price of transportation absolutely factors into the eventual price uh, when on the grocery store shelf. But I think there's a variety of contributing factors into price of food and why it's not moving directly with the price of diesel. For instance, you know, if something comes from South America, it eventually gets priced in American dollars, which hits us in the pocketbook in Canada. Secondly, there's been incredible flooding and drought where we get a lot of our produce from in California that has absolutely impacted supply, which absolutely impacts demand and eventual price. So I think there's a bunch of contributing factors involved with the price of food, and some of it absolutely does include uh, cost of transportation and diesel, no doubt. Okay, uh, I just want some understanding of this, so it put my mind at ease and everybody else who's listening, uh, why the price of food don't drop back down with uh, the cost of diesel fluctuating up and down. And there's a lot more to it than that, and that's that's what I want to know. I I didn't understand it. Uh, I was only on the diesel thing, but yeah, I appreciate you uh, explaining that to me. That's why I phoned you. Yeah, and there's some overhead input issues that virtually everyone has faced, whether it be right at the farm site. So they're paying more for all their inputs, more for fuel, more for food, more for fertilizer. That has an impact. The retailers themselves, they've got... They've got some operational impact issues that have increased over time as well, whether it be the cost of powering their operations or anything else. So I think there's probably seven or eight or ten considerations inside the price of food. But I'm not going to dispute the fact that uh, the price of diesel does indeed contribute. It it has to. How could it not? Transportation is a big part of, you know, from farm to table. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, uh, the way I see this is uh, Newfoundland is depending on too much imports. Uh, You know, Newfoundland should be producing... Uh, you know, we could have greenhouses run on across the island here. We could, you know, we buy berries. Like uh, uh, 20 years ago, you couldn't go in a store in the middle of the winter and buy, you know, a bag of blueberries and uh, that stuff, which we eat a lot. And, uh, you know, Newfoundland should have more greenhouses around growing these things on in the province, not relying on outside help and imports, you know, for this uh, food. Uh, we could grow it here in, in uh, heated greenhouses. And, uh this is what should be done, and this is what you know needs to be done. I know you know it takes time to do it, but uh, you know we we need to stop depending on outside imports. You know we need to do it ourselves. Yeah, I you know on that front, 
we always use these numbers. People say we produce only 10% of what we consume. Consequently, we import 90%. I think that number is really uh, solely based on what is in the major grocery stores. doesn't include a backyard farm or a homestead or a community garden or anything grown in the hydroponic world. But I'm with you entirely, Brian, that if we pepper the landscape with new technology inside the greenhouse world, like hydroponics specifically, we can uh-huh. do a lot better and bring the food closer to where people live. Because, yes. you know, it's not just uh, the price of food, it's also access to food. I'm lucky enough, I can go five minutes and go to a major grocery store. But people yeah. might have to drive an hour or more or way more to get yeah. a decent option for whether it be price point and or healthier options. That also plays a role. Just imagine being able to get fresh stuff right from the greenhouse that you can see from your front stoop. That makes well, a lot of sense. You know, where, I'm, where I'm living right now, uh, uh, there's a couple that moved here from Ontario. And uh, they bought uh, 35 acres just over across the harbor here. And uh, they got 10 acres cleared now. They got the beef cattle. They got the milk cattle. They got beef cattle. Okay. Uh, they got turkey. They got inns. We have to buy in, uh, uh, a dozen eggs off them right fresh right from their farm that they're starting. And when they get it all done, they get the 35 acres cleared. Uh, you know, we would be able to buy local beef here, finally. I mean, just across the harbor here, which is a good thing. And then more people here should get in on this, too, as well. You know, ask the government for a loan to get some land and do the same thing. And the more we do that, uh, the less we got to rely on uh, imported beef and, you know, chicken, this, that, and uh, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I'll add to it. We've seen what some storms have looked like in the recent past. The the thought or the concept out out there is... That we've only got some, you know, five, six, seven days for the food uh, on the island in particular at this moment in time. So yeah. any prolonged cutoff because of whether it be a storm or the damage at a wharf or something, we could find ourselves in a pretty tricky spot sooner than later. So every time we can make further self-reliance a priority on food in particular, I think it means nothing but good ideas. So, you know, the government talks about doubling food production, what have you, but I think even municipalities, individuals, we can all play a role in pushing that uh, that cart down the road a little quicker. Well, um, you know... Uh what I, what I was uh, uh, just thinking, um, you know, our government, uh, the, especially uh, our liberal government, is a very generous government, I must say. They are a generous government. Okay? I know there's a lot of stuff going on here and there, but they are a very generous government. I mean, it's like over in Spain, you know, if you don't work, you don't eat. Uh, the government don't help anybody over there. And uh, I think our government is a very generous government. Uh, uh, I like... Um, I like... Um, uh, 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 Trudeau, uh, I think he's doing a half-decent job uh, in ways. Yeah, uh, I, the the public's appetite for Trudeau seems to be waning, <laughs> I'll say. Uh, well, see, I'm not, I'm not, uh, see, I don't have full understanding of what goes on beyond the scenes with the government, and you know what I mean? I just was on the surface, what I hear, and whatever. Fair enough. But I, I think, you know, uh, the government is a very generous government, uh, uh, the uh, uh uh, the liberal government, and uh, you know, I, I think they're they're okay uh, in a lot of ways, right? Yeah, I think but a lot of the thing, the, the sentiment out thing. there is that they might be generous, but maybe generous to a fault. And you know, a, a couple of things. So whether it be humanitarian aid uh, abroad, support for Ukraine, all the things that people point to, the number of immigrants coming. But the one place where I I don't think I've heard a real solid argument is uh, pandemic supports. I mean, can you imagine a, a country where if 
Canadians, individuals, and businesses were not supported, and there was deep flaws in some of the programs, the recovery, economically speaking, would be even tougher. Now, there's yeah. definitely an argument to be made that too much money went out the door too quickly. No question in my mind. But we'll see. You know, the polls are kind of leaning towards the Conservatives, but the polls are only snapshots in time. We'll see where it goes. Brian, I'll well, give you a chance to wrap it up with the final words. Go ahead. Yes, one more thing, too. Uh, I was told, this is just rumor, uh, I was told that you cannot um, install solar panels uh, on the roof of your house uh, because if the hydro will not let you, uh, will not allow it. At, it depends allow where, that. Is that true? It depends where you are in the country. Pardon? It depends where you are in the country. Oh, okay. Uh, mandatory laws and stuff? Yeah, well, they're solar panels like the, the, the town of Baleen. They're using solar panels on the town, uh, the town hall itself. Then there's parts of Ontario where they not only have widespread installation of solar panels, but they're able to sell the power back to the grid, the power they don't need. So it really does depend where you are in the country. Oh, that's a wonderful thing. Well, listen, uh, sir, I appreciate this. Uh, uh, and uh, now you got me straightened out. Uh, okay, I won't question this stuff no more. <laughs> oh, yes, boy. We should all question everything at every turn. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Yeah. You have a good day, sir. Thank you for talking to me. Thanks, Brian. All the best. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Uh, break time. When we come back, Diane wants to talk about politicians. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Diane, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? I'm doing great. How about you? Uh, not bad. Um, I have a couple of things. Actually, I want to talk politicians, but uh, I heard them talking about groceries. Mm -hmm. Just make a couple of quick, uh, quick comments on it. Uh, yes, uh, you know, groceries are way up. I'm a senior. On a fixed income, so you can probably say a poverty senior. Um, I don't see when the prices come down in fuel and stuff. No, the groceries do not come down unless you're looking for a sale. Absolutely. You know, and like even when the when Loblaw said, we're going to freeze prices over the holidays, which all sounded great, but most every retailer freezes prices over the holidays every year, no matter what pandemic included. So, yeah, go ahead, Diane. No, I, I agree with that 200%. Um, I don't know when seniors also had a, 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 an increase in their OAS. The only group of seniors that got an increase outside of cost of living were 75 plus got a 10% bump. Yeah, 75%. Yeah. I'm senior just over 70, so I haven't seen one for years. And like I said, how many senior living by myself? Yes, and that was that's really not, controversial, wasn't it? Enough. You know, when the Pardon? Deputy Prime Minister said there's a 10% increase coming to old age security, but only if you're over to the age of 75, which leaves out a lot of seniors. But the only other thing, Patty, about that is most people, not most people, but a lot of seniors who are all lucky enough to live over 70, uh, 75 for sure, uh, especially we're in the baby boomers, um, by the time they get to 75 plus, they're ready to go into a senior's home and who takes the bulk of that money? you got to pay a lot of money in a senior's home. And they take a lot from you before you get there. Yeah. That's a complicated issue because it's it's coming up with what your allowance, as they call it, will be, which seems like a real slap in the face to be getting allowance from anybody, and how much, you, how much support you get from government determining how much money comes out of your pocket versus government. So there's a lot of complications there. And there used to be a time when every single thing is factored in. All your holdings, all your possessions, your home, your stocks, your bonds, your savings, your pensions. We've really got to figure that out a, lot, a little better. I agree with you. I worked in a nursing home uh, for years. And 
I've seen a lot of people come in and what they did talk about, right, and what they did lose. And I don't think it's fair for the government to turn around and take what you as a person built all your life. And imagine, Patty, if you had to go in and uh, they took, you know, all all the prices and and, uh, income you've had and decided, oh, no, you know, you don't need that. And they start clawing it back. And here's the house that you, 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 you know, put all your money in. Um, you're hoping that it'll be passed on to your grandchildren, your children, grandchildren, and all of a sudden, you know, you get an allowance in the home. That's ridiculous to me. Uh, sounds ridiculous to me too. And you know, I it's been a while since I had someone on to give us the breakdown, the ins and the outs, everything we need to understand about the allowance when you're in the home and how much it costs, what the supports are out there, you know, eligibility issues, all of those things. I should organize someone to come on and spell that out for us again. I'd like to hear it, actually. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because I have somebody who I know is going into a home and uh, I don't know exactly what way it's going to work for them. But uh, I, I do know that they did a lot of clawbacking uh, when I was working and it does not seem fair for them to go in and be on a, an allowance after working all your life and then things are taken from you. No, that doesn't seem right. Yeah. But I would like to know, like I said, if somebody, like you said, uh, who knew the ins and outs of it could come in and spell it out. Yeah. But anyway, uh, I wanted to talk about politicians. Go ahead. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, and my dad was an avid... PC. Okay. And he always says, if you ca- if you don't vote, you can't comment on about what's going on in politics because yeah. you didn't put your input in there. Yeah. I agree with him, but as far as I'm concerned, all I've ever heard is politicians saying they're going to do this and they're going to do that when they get in, and when they get in, they do something totally opposite and not what they said they were going to do. And I think a lot of people would agree with that. And I hope that they call in today if they got time, and if not tomorrow. Uh, to me, politicians are full of lies, and basically I would call them liars. Fair. Uh, that's... What they say they're going to do is not done. Very rare. So we've got four people running now, and I've heard compliments, uh, not compliments, comments about negativity in each of uh, three of them. And, you know, that's not very good because it's, it's on the, like I said, you can't comment if you don't vote, but who do you vote for? Yeah, I get that concept, you know. I think fundamentally, if you don't vote, fair enough. Say whatever you want to say. It doesn't bother me. But ultimately, that question about there's no one fit to vote for. You know, there's the thought that maybe you put on the ballot, none of the above, just to make that protest vote known. But no matter how you slice it, whether or not you appreciate it or like the you know, 50 plus one, the first past the post system, all of that stuff included, eventually, after election night, someone will be declared the winner. You might not think anyone's fit, but someone's going to win that seat, uh, no matter what Absolutely. your political leanings are. So, And I don't mind if people say what they want, but the whole thought of, you know, you promise one thing, your fingers and your toes are across, and you get into the office and you don't ex- execute or deliver on your promises. That's true. I mean, for the most part, that's absolutely true. I think what becomes a bigger problem there, Diane, is that let's just say I run as a very independent, open-minded uh, politician or aspiring politician. I got all these big ideas and things I want to achieve. But then you get elected, and what happens 
far too often to almost every single politician is you become beholden to the party become beholden to the leader you can't step out of line without jeopardy of losing your spot whether it be in cabinet or on a committee or those types of things so quickly people who thought sounded like they really had the the gumption and the ideas they become a bit more like political robots than they do individuals yes they fall to the wayside yeah they just are towing the party line all the time right well the thing is they don't have a box to tick when you vote in, in the point of um, being indepe- independent, well, they they run as independent, but um, I have to forget my train of thought. Um, there's not a box to tick that spells out you you, you don't do or whatever that you say you're going to do. That's not exactly what I was going to how I was going to phrase it, but. Uh, Anyway, I might have to lose my train of thought. But I, I don't think the politicians do what they say, and they are, to me, liars. But there is another box that could be put on, on, on the thing, I think, but I'll call back another time. But um, I, that, that's my final thing on that is they're, they're liars, and who do you vote for? I haven't seen a politician, and I've been voting, and like my dad said, if you don't vote, you can't, well, you, you know, you can complain yes or no, but, I mean, I hate hearing people say, oh, you know, he didn't do this, he didn't do that, you know, somebody else would be in, but they didn't vote. Yeah, I know people that never vote, and I've never missed the chance. But do, do they complain about the politicians? Non-stop. The going around them? Non-stop. Yeah, there you go. Next time, just shut them up fast. I don't like to use that word, that phrase. But say, look, if you don't vote, don't complain. Yeah, I. you know what? To be honest with you, Diane, I don't have the brain power to fight with them. You know, if they can go on and on and on all they like, some some it's in, their, in one ear, out the other. And this I'm talking about in my own social circles. But, you know, I, the the issue with people not wanting to vote, I understand it. But that level of, what's the word I'm trying to drum up here? And it's not skepticism. Anyway, it just fell out of my brain. Is well, that's like me. If my fell out of my brain. It's too. the politician's best friend. The fewer people voting, the fewer people they have to reach. So if every single person, if 100% voter turnout was the reality, we would absolutely have a bigger stick to carry as the electorate that we currently have because the politicians know all I have to do is make sure that my base, my base supporters, if I can get them out to vote, I'm probably going to do okay. But the world is bigger than people who align themselves in full with one party or another. So, you know, apathy was the word I was looking for. Goodness gracious. So apathy is a politician's best friend. And we've got to wrap our mind around that. Uh, Diane, I'll give you the final thought if it hasn't fallen out of your mind, <laughs> and then we'll take a break. No, uh, that's the thing, you know, you should vote uh, to put your two cents in, so to speak. And um, it'll never happen in my day that the politicians will do what they said they wanted to do before they got in. Yeah. And that's that's my final two cents is politicians are basically to me. And people actually, uh, Patty, one thing you did say, and I'll, that, that's my final word. Uh, people who go on and on and on, and to me, it doesn't matter what they say, I 
try to change the conversation or, you know, I'll, I'll make an excuse to get away from them at that particular time. I don't want to listen to BS anymore. It, to me, it's just a total, way, a total waste of my time and my, my energy. And if anybody in mental health uh, are going to counseling, they will be told. If it brings you down, don't go there. Stay away from people. Stay away any conversation that's negative to you. I appreciate the call this morning, Diane. Yes, thank you, Patty. Good you to have, have you on. One. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, there we go. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you. The topic is up to you. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go. Line number two. Kevin, you're on the air. How are you today, Patty? Great by you. Oh, not too bad. A little cold, but uh, that's all you can do about that. Yep. Uh, talking uh, about uh, muskrat. Now, uh, the other Kevin was on there earlier, giving it to Dave Brazel, but... Uh, uh, it was Ken, yep. Yep. Well, neither here nor there. I mean, he's not the man that signed it. I'm, I'm now, and I, I know Dave Brazel will see him. That's it. So there's no. <laughs> but uh, you know, Danny is the man that if you're going to put any blame anywhere, Danny's the one to push this. Danny created Nalcor. Danny took it. Well, I'm not sure if it was Danny or Dunderdale took it away from the PUB. So they had no win. Yeah, Bill 1661 came in under Dunderdale, of course, because Williams uh, resigned very shortly after announcing that they were proceeding with Muscrat Falls. Of course, that was reverse engineering. It wasn't now, of course, saying, here's a plan. Here's exactly what we think we can achieve at Muscrat Falls. It sounds to me like they were told, give us a plan. You know, uh, Premier Williams said, I need a plan for Muscrat Falls. They created what they created, and here we are. Oh, without a doubt. And, you know, they're all in on it. Danny signed it off. Danny's the one who pushed it and wanted it and everything else. Dunderdale was involved. Wade Lack, I mean, look at how well. And, again, they're only going on information, like you were saying earlier, that uh, Martin and, and Bennett and a few more like them were supplying them. So, you know, you can only go so far, but where does the blame lie? And at that at that point in time, perhaps if you were sitting at the table or I was, we might have said, yes, for was a good deal for $7 billion. There was nobody could see that it was going to double. Well, I don't know who saw what, but, you know, there's a lot of blame to be passed around here, I think. Oh, without a doubt. And so, you know, the, the sanction decision came well after. So, you know, several people have told me Mr. Brazel was only elected uh, very shortly after Williams resigned, which is all fair, but sanction, final sanction came well down the line. And I do think that, you know, the information that could have really swayed public support or political decisions was willfully kept from us. Oh, I, I mean, that just makes it so much more galling. That drives me around the bend. But anyway... I mean, I, I, I thought, is there any way to do a civil suit for misuse of public funds against some of these clowns? But uh, to get back now before I let you go, I know you're busy there this morning to that lady there that was on a minute ago talking about the politicians in the politics. I believe we should have something like the states. Let's elect the premier independently of a party. Let the parties go in and talk to him, and he'll make a decision then based on what's what. Yeah, but we, they don't do that in the States. The the governors or the president, they are directly affiliated with the party. Oh, 
that's right. That's true. Yeah. I mean, what they do in some parts of the United States, they have something called recall legislation, right? And imagine, remember, it famously happened to the governor of California, Brown. Oh, but, yes. And, you know, recall legislation sounds in concept to make sense because if you don't follow through, we get to boot you out. But just yep. think about how disgruntled we all are with politicians. We'd be having by-elections every weekend. Oh, without a doubt. <laughs> you know? Without a doubt. Yeah, but there has to be some way because it's towing the party line. When you get in and you ask any of them, they make out to tow the party line and then look after their constituents, which comes second. Yeah, so, I mean, it's all in the group, so... There has to be some way. It's either all independent or independently, let's elect the premier. That way there's no affiliation. You can't say one party or the other, and there's no tone line. You've got to have that middleman. Yeah, which is why people say, you know what, uh, less 40 independents would be better than the current party system. And there are flaws to the party system. There's no doubt about it. But human nature will lead us down uh, very similar paths. People would be aligning themselves with like-minded. So you'd have little blocks of vote, even if people were all the independent member for Burge Olapoil, the independent member for Grand Falls, Windsor, or at Buckins. They'd all have that tag, that eye in front of them, but eventually they'll just have some, you know, hive mind kind of stuff, and they'd have just little blocks of aligned independence. So we'd just be doing away with... L and PC and NDP and p replace them with an I, but then the I's just all get together and get things through because you're always going to have to have 21 votes to get anything through the House of Assembly. So inevitably people just kind of, you know, they get together, even inside municipal councils with no party representation. You'll have groups that are like-minded that vote the same way on different issues. It's just kind of human nature. So, but it, it would be probably a little bit more manageable than the party system because let's say I was aligned with a bunch of the MHAs, but on one issue, because it wasn't good for my constituents, I could speak out. And what could they do to me? Nothing, right? Because exactly. they're not my boss. They're not my minister. They're not my premier. So it's an interesting way to talk about how we do some reformation. And democratic reform is required. It's a big conversation, but we just kind of kick it around and think it all begins and ends with 50% uh, plus one or first past the post. Well, it's more than that. It, it oh. just is. Kevin, last thoughts to you, sir. Okay, to just go to say that we got to have the middleman middle in there that they can go to. Like you were saying, if Grandpa and Gander and all that can get together, but if it goes to an unbiased middle person who would be the premier and not, not affiliated in any way, well, then he could judge it on its merits. Yeah, it still need 21 votes, no matter how you oh, slice it or who's in charge. Yep. Oh, without a doubt. But, I mean, you have to judge it on the merits, and then you could be held accountable for what you're doing. Fair ball. Appreciate the time. Thanks, you Kevin. Too, bud. You have a good one. You too, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's go to PEI. Say good morning to the chef de mission for Team NL at the 2023 Canada Winter Games. That's Tom Godden. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you doing? Doing great. How about yourself? Wonderful. We had a great night yesterday evening with uh, Gleb Estevnev, who uh, captured a gold medal in trampoline. I think it's brilliant. I follow along, and I saw that last night, and I was thrilled for him. But I'm thrilled for the team because, you know, one individual gold medal actually can have a ripple effect throughout the team. You know, you get that monkey off your back collectively and think, you know what? We can do it. We can be successful. Let's go. Because, I mean, even when myself and Jack were at the Winnipeg Games, when we saw success in other sports, it really buoyed the spirits of the other athletes. Yeah, it's certainly a boost for all the teams uh, representing Team NL. And uh, it was really encouraging to see last evening a lot of the other teams. We had biathletes there. We had the other parts of the gymnastics team. We had several sports who came to the venue last night to watch Gleb compete. 
And I can tell you the uh, the stadium was alive there last night with lots of Newfoundland fans and lots of Newfoundland athletes cheering Gleb on. So it was uh, wonderful to see. Yeah, and that's a big part of the experience, isn't it? Like I saw some of the Team NL hockey uh, members making their way to watch some wheelchair basketball because when you're at home and you've got the busy social life, school life, sports life, you maybe don't get a chance to see these other disciplines in action, especially at this highest level. So that's all, also another great feature. Yeah, it's one of the things we've been encouraging since the athletes got here is that when you have some downtime, down you have approval from your coaches, go out and see the other sports, you know, uh, absorb what's going on in other places and other venues and root on your teammates and root on the other teams from other provinces as well. Everybody's here in sort of a collegial sort of capacity. Uh, the amount of camaraderie amongst groups, even amongst teams from different provinces, you know, handshakes after the end of the games and events and so forth is really encouraging to see. Tom, talk about what would be the wide-eyed experience for, I would say, every single athlete competing because they may have played in some Atlantic championships, may have competed at the Nationals, but that's only in their sport. So for 20 different sports, or even more probably represented at the Canada Winter Games, you must see a lot of wide-eyed athletes that are experiencing something that was way outside their, their normal exposure. Yeah, one of the benefits of, of uh, competing in a multi-sport event because outside of the Canada Games, we're, it's sort of unique to this country not very many countries in the world have sort of multi-sport events happening within their jurisdictions. So the only exposure a lot of athletes would have to this kind of event is the Olympics. So uh, this is the next best thing. So, you know, again, we're encouraging our athletes to get out and see other sports, see what kind of commitment it takes to be good at other sports. And as you suggested, that's sort of an infectious thing. So uh, when they see athletes who are committed and dedicated to their own discipline out giving it their all that's encouraging for them so when they go back to their own events uh, they put that a little extra effort in so it's it's Really good. 100%. You know, and I guess the, the tier between Canada Games and the Olympics, throwing some Pan Ams and some Commonwealth Games, those types of things. And speaking of Pan Ams, I understand Glib is going to the Junior Pan Ams coming up in Mexico. He is. Yeah, he's got a couple of events coming up, uh, which are quite exciting. And uh, Gleb, <laughs> he commented afterwards, after he won the gold medal and through the ceremony and so forth, he said, my face is tired. I'm just tired of smiling so much. Uh, and it was nice to see his mom there too. Uh, she was, uh, she is here, and uh, the two of them together after the event. Uh, I mean, they've put a lot of time and effort in. You know, can't forget the parents. Uh, there are a lot of parents here, by the way, Patty, uh, who are cheering on their their children, uh, as I know you've done in the past. Uh, it's wonderful to see. It's it's a remarkable event. I'll never forget the experience. The entire family went. Why not, right? It, w it was a great chance for all of us to enjoy all of the different sports, which with which we went and saw a bunch of different sports when we were in Winnipeg. Uh, you know, and then, of course, for the long-term takeaways is what I think is amazing. You know, you go to the Olympics, you do all the pin swaps and stuff, but exchanging maybe a team jacket or a jersey or a hat or a scarf or something with athletes from other provinces is also a really cool takeaway. Yeah, that uh, the whole notion of the pin trading and, you know, swapping of gear and stuff like that is alive and well here at these games, I can tell you. And we were very fortunate to have some uh, very well sought after pins, the Newfoundland pins uh, that we've come up with this time around. Uh, we've even got some mission staff here who are hoping to trade some of their their gear uh, for pins. They, they see some gear from other provinces. Say, Would you like to trade pins? 
yeah, they're actually trading pins for gear. So it's kind of interesting. To Fantastic. See. Tom, how do you gauge success? success? Is it left up to the individual or the team to, you know, set their own bar and whether or not they hit it and some of the personal best that might be recorded? How, do the, how does the, the mission team gauge success? Or is that part of your mandate, do you think? Well, it certainly is. I mean, it's, it's sort of setting goals for each of the teams. Of course, they have their own goals they set. But one of the things that we've encouraged amongst the entire contingent is not focusing on trying to beat the big, you know, strong uh, provinces necessarily. It's to go out and perform at your best. And uh, if best is ninth or tenth place, well, that's what it is in your particular discipline. But if best takes you like Gleb to the uh, to the top of the podium, fantastic. So. Just play within your own uh, strengths. Don't try to do anything supernatural uh, that you haven't done already. Uh, we're, we're just trying to, to, to control people's uh, level of expectation here. And as I said, if that's, if that's top place, wonderful. Uh, if it's not and you've done your best, uh, because our mantra here is doing your best, nothing less. We expect nothing less than your best when you perform. Uh, but certainly nothing more. Enjoy the rest of the time, Tom, and uh, good luck to all the participants and hopefully the individuals, the athletes, managers, coaches, trainers, families have the experience that I enjoyed and I know that you're having. I look forward to an update again next week. Yeah, thanks, Patty. Thanks for your interest. Thanks, Tom. All the best. Okay. Uh, Tom Godden, he's the chef de mission for Team NL. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Come back. Let's go. Line number three. Stephen, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Can you hear me, buddy? I can hear you, Stephen. Awesome. How are you this? Um, as you probably were told, I uh, I uh, been going through a well. I, I had a um, mental uh, mental illnesses as well. Uh, I wanted to say that um, I've been going through it since November. Um, uh, I know everybody has their struggles and problems. I just wanted to say that as well, but. My main reason for calling this morning is because uh, I uh, um, uh, lost my dad when I was five. Uh, I lost my dad and my stepfather in 2020 there. Now, I've been going through it since November. I found my mom passed. Um, my and the house that I'm living in was me and my mom's. And uh, now me and her were on the lease together. Um and uh, as I said, I think my, my I think I said my purpose for calling here this morning was for the people to hear who need to hear me to hear me, um, being unable to get in contact with people. But me and my mom were on the lease, as I said, and uh, she was she was the main leaseholder. It feels like I'm just being taken advantage of. I know the housing situation here in Newfoundland is everybody's, and I'm really stressed out about that. Um, I've had some you know unfortunate thoughts, and I've had a attempt in the past um just feel like i'm stuck with no help um i don't have those thoughts now but with the time closing in it's definitely having putting stress on me um as i said uh um uh yeah just, just been unable to get in contact with anybody and i just appreciate you listening to me right now so what kind um, of help do you need Stephen? help me understand uh well that's uh that's i guess what i I just want the people who need to hear me to hear me wayne follett is the head of the housing i was told that 
he would be able to help me. Um, also, my MHA, which I believe is Jerry Dana. I do have a grade 12 education. I'm pretty educated. Um, um, I, I, I'm not Albert Einstein or nothing, but, uh, you know, um, I never float my own boat. Um, I, uh, if any of those people are listening or uh, if there's any help that anybody could provide or anything that you could direct or help with. Um, I really appreciate anything. I'm, I've just been trying to grow my life since my mom, since well before my mom passed with my mom and obviously it's unexpected. So I really don't know where I'm going to turn to in life right now. I have no parents and I'm um, just in this house alone ever since. Um, my nephew and my niece are really great, and uh, my dog is my best friend. <laughs> and so, if uh, if I'm going to try to point you in the right direction, um, and hopefully I'm Anything. I'm trying to hear what you're saying. What exactly are you looking for for support, so that I can think about how to help? What What do you need? Uh, maybe I I I was told Wayne Follett. The head of the uh, of the housing uh, could provide uh, help, and as I said, the MHA, Jerry Din, which I believe uh, may provide uh, some help. Um, Stephen, I'm on tour as it. Yeah. Do you use email? I have everything. Yeah. Okay. What I'd like for you to do, because sometimes it's easier to collect our thoughts and put them in an email while we have time to think it through, and you know maybe something comes to mind that might not during this phone call. So, if you can send me an email while you collect your thoughts and you can put them in the form of an email to me, so that then I can try to find the right person to connect you with to get whatever help or support you need. So, does that sound like a fair idea? That, that, that's great. Any help, like I said, I'm just trying to get it all now. Uh, I just want the people to, uh, I'm asking, you know, I, I, I do need a bit of help. I have no parent left, and I, I just need the people who need to hear this to hear this, and I, I figured your show would be the best. But, um, I, I, I do stream sometimes. Uh, rather do it here than there. I mean, uh, today, here is where I can get the, the support. Um, I do lean towards the local support and everything. Okay. So here's what I want you to do. Be as specific as you can in the email, whether it be financial support or emotional or mental support or something, like whatever it is you think very specifically, so that you can take your time, write that email, get it to me when you can, and I'll take it from there. So my email address is a really simple one. It's just openline at vocm.com. So if you do that for me, I'll do what I can for you. How's that sound? Stephen? Did we lose him there, Greg? I don't know. Uh, okay. So how about this, Greg? I'll go ahead and disconnect here now. But can we call him back to see if he heard that final message just to make sure? So let's do that. So, Stephen, you get me that email and we'll go from there. Uh, Joe, appreciate your patience. He wants to talk about wind power, the wind power being generated up the shore, the southern shore. Took away. Well, welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Joe, you're on the air. Great. Thanks. Um, yeah, I was driving through the Valley of Death, a.k.a. La Manche, which is why I got disconnected. 
Uh, I had a car accident there a few weeks ago. Car went off the road, and I couldn't get hold of nine one one or anybody because the phone is. Anyways, what I wanted to call about was uh, someone last week, and I'm honestly now I can't remember if it was your station or um, what's his name, Anthony, in the evening. But they're talking about uh, windmills and how there are protests against the windmills in uh, the West Coast. Yeah. And he was going on about the possibilities of windmills in the West Coast and Central, and he never mentioned Fermuse. And so I was wondering, why don't they go to Fermuse and ask the people, what did you think before the windmills, and what do you think now? Because the windmills in Fermuse are not hidden, makes a couple of thousand dollars for the town every year, and the, and the town needs it, at least before now this $100 million uh, deep water rig business comes in. But why not ask the people that have windmills in the yards? Yeah, I mean, well, I don't know about the people in the region thought when the windmills were being installed. Do you? No, I don't. I just moved here five years ago. But um, they seem happy. Yeah, you know, I think there's a bit of a difference here because we're talking about the Fermuse wind is, I think, generates some 27 megawatts and isn't quite as, I'll use the word, intrusive as we're talking about 164 in Phase 1 out in port port Peninsula or 300 out in Exploit. So I think scale might play a role in how people view it. But you make a fair point, is, you know, to ask the people who, whether they were opposed or all in favor of, uh, prior to installation, what they feel like today. The leaders in the port port area, they did indeed go to a wind farm uh, in Ontario, to get a better feel for what it looks like, it feels like, and sounds like, you know, so they they were had their concerns with sound alleviated by seeing it up close and personal. So you're you're right to talk to people who are actually living in an area that has one thing or another, whether it be a fish plant or a an aquaculture farm or a wind farm, whatever it is. It's always helpful to get uh, information from people who actually have lived experience versus the concept of not liking it. Yep. Yeah, that also, makes sense. I was thinking, yeah, it makes sense. Perfect sense. And I was thinking in terms of political parties, we, we need a party that doesn't operate in every riding necessarily, but it takes a poll in the riding, and if they want their person out, then they pick the next person most likely to win and, and work hard to get that person in. Anyways, that's my suggestion. That's my rant about that. <laughs> and I appreciate you making it here on the show, Joe. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Thanks. Take Have care. You too. Bye-bye. I mean, Joe makes an extremely valid point is, you know, if someone or one community or region or another has experience with one industry, one project or another, knowing what they felt like when it was first proposed and whether or not their minds have changed since and or they continue to feel the same way, whether it be full-throated in support of and or completely opposed to. Because when something is new, when something is... Uh, absolutely in its infancy, and we're talking about green hydrogen and some of these massive wind farms, we don't really have much experience with it, right? We've got one small setup down in Ramia, we've got the one in Fermuse, but we have nothing to the scope and the scale and the magnitude of the current proposals, of which there are some 31 being considered. Now, there's no way all 31 are going to make, the, make it to um, get the light of day and ever install a single turbine, but that's where I think some of the pushback is coming from. And curiously, not one single note. After we spoke with Scott Sibier, the chair of the Exploits Valley Group that are bringing forward this proposal for 300 wind turbines and bought would be the hub for shipping the green hydrogen or what have you, not one person wrote me an email based on it. When World Energy GH2 came to town with their proposal, it was immediate. So again, I think that bolsters the fact that 
the fact that John Risley is involved really does fuel some of that pushback. And so I don't know if that's an exaggeration, but it sure feels like it at this moment in time. Let's go ahead and go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. Good morning to you. I wonder if you could confirm the like, uh, climate incentive program was starting in July for, for people, or you call it the carbon tax rebate. So yep. what's actually the amount for one person in a household? Uh, I will drag that up for you now. I have this in my thingy-me-jiggy. Here we go. So it, I think the first uh, checks come out in June for the climate incentive stuff. And here we go. I got the numbers right now. Okay. Newfoundland and Labrador residents will get their first climate uh, action checks, you're right, in July. Individual adults will receive a quarterly payment of $164. And it depends where you live. You get more if you live outside the metro region. An additional $82 if a second adult lives in the home. Households will also get $41 for each child who lives in the home. So, a family four gets an annual payment of $1,312. So the only question that you answered for me was right, but like I say, one individual actually gets 164 yep. quarterly starting in July. Yep. Yeah, I just want to put a topic on the, our groceries too, uh, Mr. Daly. Sure. Like I say, I, I usually take notice to prices, and uh, I'm going to speak up uh, four, in, four uh, hygiene products like our laundry detergent and our and our scent-free products, like I have to buy, you know, scent-free. They got me scent-free because I'm allergic to uh, colognes and that kind of stuff. Okay. And I bought uh, three items over the last six months. cost me $7.89. That's including the laundry detergent and your your soap net. And uh, and right now, it went from seven seven eighty nine to fifteen eighty six. Same three items six months ago. It's never ending, isn't it? Well, that's way of whopping 100%, right? Yep. Take for an example, like a three bar soap sent free was 329 Paid for an yesterday, 789 Same bar soap, three bars sent free. I mean, I don't know if there's any real justification for any of that stuff, but, you know. It's unreal. So that's all I had to say, Mr. Daly. Like I say, you confirmed that to me. So I got I answered the question. You answered uh, correctly. So that's all I need to talk about today. I appreciate your time. Thanks for the call. Okay. Okay. Thank take you. care. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, all right. This is the final break of the morning. When we come back, still have time for a couple of callers for sure. So hopefully you're one of them. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Am I taking that one, Greg? I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know. So he's just organized the call there. There was a caller about uh, price of groceries and whatnot, and factoring in diesel, of which there's lots of contrib- contributing factors, including diesel. And then, as I've been reminded, and I didn't know whether or not I mentioned it at the time, but we also have to factor in profits. And profits are way up. The grocery store leadership executives are quite cross with us for daring to question whether or not there's excessive profit coming in the door, whether or not there's the concept of price gouging being, you know, uh, sort of disguised with inflation and all the other supply chain related matters. So you're right. The grocery stores, they're not starving like many of us are. Let's go to line number one. David, you're on the air. Yes. Good morning, sir. Morning to you. Uh, I want to talk about the windmills in St. Lawrence. Sure. Uh, apparently they were put back there around in 2003 to 2005 at a cost of $55 million. 
Uh, we're talking about uh, in Ramia or from Hughes or? St. Lawrence. St. Lawrence, okay. What's down there? Uh, they got nine windmills. The government put them back there in, I think it was around 2002 to 2005. Produced 27 megawatts of power. That's right. Uh, apparently all that was sold in 2020. To who? Uh, BC Company. Oh, I see. I did not know that. Uh, I guess and a lot of people didn't know that, but anyway, just, uh, I was just wondering how much we lost on that deal. I would have no earthly idea, but that's something I can absolutely figure out. I can find the information surrounding who bought it, when, and for how much. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be just interesting to know. I mean, everybody's talking about the windmills and that, and you never hear nothing mentioned about the ones down there. And I mean, they're beautiful-looking things until they break down and they go from right nice and white to brown and black stains all over the place. Yeah, I, I have never heard of that, but I know someone who can absolutely fill in the blanks. And another thing, I'd like to know how much oil it takes to lubricate one of those. Just uh, no, just from my own knowledge there, because like I said, they're nice and white and that, and you can tell the ones that they break down because they stop them spinning and they break and, uh, well, they turn brown because the oil is running out of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine there's probably a difference between uh, wind turbines and the technology used uh, back in the early 2000s versus what might be the advent of new wind turbines today. But again, someone who understands industry, which I don't, I don't pretend to, because there's, it, there's not something we've really dealt with very much in this province. But uh, once again, I know who to go to there. There's a fellow who I know is an engineer who works in the wind industry. He'll probably be able to rhyme off those details to me in a very quick email. So I'll do that. Thank you. No sweat, David. All the best. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, those very specifics about the engineering and whether it be lubricants or self-lubricating or maintenance and scheduling and cost, I don't know. But that's interesting about the wind farm in St. Lawrence. I had no idea that happened. So I appreciate David giving me that tidbit of info, and we'll see if we can find out the details about the when, the who, and the how much. Let's go to line number four. Jerry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Hi, Jerry. I got I got a bit of a problem uh, with with the health care. Not a bit of a problem, big problem. I got a brother in law who broke his ankle two weeks ago. Broke his ankle in three places. Uh, they put a cast on it till he got into St. John. This was in Carbon Air. Uh, they sent him to St. John's the following week. Uh, they said his ankle was in worse shape than uh, he said. We're going to get you in for surgery. Uh, he's been canceled now the last two days, and we don't know. He don't know when he's getting in. This is two weeks ago, Patty. I mean, bones start to heal. I mean, uh, I think uh, if they start to break that again, because if they're healed, they got to break it again to reset it. And uh, he just he's, he just ticked off. He's he's in his mid seventies. I mean, uh, he's been. Uh, <laughs> he calls it booted out. The last he, he was they, uh, yesterday, they put the Johnny coat on him. They had him all ready to go, sitting there for two hours, and come out and say, "No, can't do you today." Yeah, do we happen to understand why? Was he ever given a reason as to why they were unable to accommodate him one day or another? No, no. They said they can't do. All he said was they can't do you today. That was it. Yeah. And they had him, they had him sitting there, in a, you know, with the Johnny coat on, all ready to go. And he said, well, are you going to cut my cast off? She said, we'll do that when we get in. And uh, anyway, you know, it's been, it, it's, it's just ridiculous because, 
I know there is there is emergency cases. Yes, there is. I I can understand that, and uh, you know it might just so that you know there was car accidents and people you know uh, was more of a merge than in. But two weeks, I mean, two weeks with a broken ankle in three places and can't get in. Well, is he feeling uh, severe pain or anything as well? Well, he got him on pills and medication now, so. And the doctor, uh, doctor from Bay Roberts put him on stronger pills. So with those pills, he's not in a lot of pain because he's still got the cast on. And he's in, uh, he's, they're staying in the hotel. They, his daughter flew home from Calgary just to be with him and, and, and help him. So now he's been in there now three nights, three nights in St. John's in the hotel, waiting there, and now don't know if he's going to get in. He may get in late this evening after 3 o'clock. They don't know. Well, fingers crossed they do, and anyone out there who's ever broken something, it can be just absolutely terrible. And hopefully, you know, far too often we go straight to the pill, don't we? So yeah. let's hope that doesn't become the next problem. No, well, that's true. That's true. I mean, you know, with the that's they, they put them on medication first from Carbonair, and those pills weren't doing the job. So his doctor from uh, Bay Roberts put them on stronger pills, and they did do the job you know it's not the harsh oxycontin or anything like that it's i think it's just a stronger uh you know pain relief right? yeah i understand uh-huh so uh i i know and there we got the doctor that's supposed to do him oh i'm gonna do you doctor O'Day, he's gone he's over in guatemala dr right out is in guatemala there's two surgeons and they're talking about hospitals being closed in newfoundland and we got surgeons gone in another country i mean it's just ridiculous yeah we're at it all the time too yeah, and we're at all the time, and uh, and now you know the ones that really need it. I think I think this is an emergency because I mean it's been two weeks. I mean bones do heal, you know, and then they got to break them again. So if they break them again, and then they get a shattered piece or a little share that you know what happens then they got to go back in again. You know? Yeah, I had a finger that was broken, and I was too stupid to, to go get it attended to, and eventually when I did, they had to break it again. Yeah. 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 And that's that's a reality, and that could be what happens to him. Fingers crossed it's not, and even uh, tighter fingers crossed that he will get in this afternoon sometime after 3 o'clock. If that's the hope, I hope we get satisfied. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, he's been phoning people, trying to get in. <laughs> he's, he's, he's ticked. He's really ticked. He's the last word you said. Politician better not come to my door when I get out. <laughs> totally get it. Wish him well for me, will you? I will so, Patty. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, aggravating. Let's go. Line number three. Paul, you're on the air. Hi, Hi Paul. Hello, hello. Come hello, on. hello. I'd like to comment on your carbon tax uh, issue you were just previously talking about. Sure. Uh, who actually pays carbon tax? I know I paid at the pumps. Uh, you, you're paying it directly at the pump, for instance. Even on our old scheme here provincially, the carbon tax was blended into the price per liter. Yeah, yes, at around eleven right. cents. Last going off. Yes. So there's a household who's being uh, powered by electricity charged with carbon tax. No. No. Uh, and so what I heard was they're going to pay one. At one person household, a hundred and sixty-five dollars quarterly. Yeah, for one individual living in the home. That's right. Yeah. 
Does that individual need a car to get carbon tax? No, and see, that's some of the confusion here with how the federal plan works because I tried to help someone explain it to us because we hadn't been under it. I invited an economist from Calgary on, and Alberta's on the federal plan. Uh, his name is Trevor Tome, and he explained that this is an across-the-board thing. So as opposed to what would be, I would imagine, bureaucratically heavy, would be to evaluate whether or not you use home heating fuels and how much of it you use and how much gas or diesel you consume or other toys you might have, like whether or not you have a boat and a quad and a skidoo and whatever else to evaluate exactly how much you spend on carbon tax, which is why there's a one-size-fits-all for the climate, incentive, uh, climate action incentive payments. Not that that sounds fair, but that's how he explained it to me. Yeah, it doesn't sound really fair to me. You're going to give carbon tax $40 quarterly for every kid who lives in the house and I'm pretty sure they're not driving anything. No, but they're being heated and driven around. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> it just seems another government really get COVID money out to everybody. Now, whether you had $100,000 salary or a quarter million dollar salary or a $40,000 salary, it's, uh, it baffles me, this carbon tax. Uh, I think Trudeau's on the way out. His carbon tax has gone with him. Yeah, the only side of that conversation is, you know, I I do find carbon tax fascinating, and I'm not so sure this works. There's a story out today about emissions, which I'll probably talk about tomorrow when I have a chance to read it closer. His, you know, it's all about politics. It's not about policy. It just really truly isn't. The champion of carbon tax initially in this country was Stephen Harper. And now because the Trudeau Liberals impose it, now all of a sudden it's the dumbest thing of all time. So we've got to get down and try to figure out what's actually the best plan. The consensus amongst the world's economists is that a price on pollution is the most effective path forward. Not to say that the Trudeau plan is the best one because it doesn't feel like it. And I guess we're all going to live it here come the summer. But, you know, that's where politics has really overtaken policy. It just has. And if, if Mr. Poliev wins, he says he's going to axe the tax, as the commercials say repeatedly. Uh, is there going to be any replacement of it or any attention to climate change policies? I don't really know because he hasn't really explained what that looks like. 65% or thereabouts of Canadians voted for a party with a climate plan. So we'll see how they you know, work through that politically when we go back to the, uh, the voting booths. But there's still a lot of confusion out there, Paul, including with me. I agree. And one other little item. I heard about the windmills this morning. Sure. Do we need windmills at all? Well, it depends. That boss is going to put out more power than we can handle. That's true, because we have to give uh, some 20-ish percent of it to uh, Nova Scotia anyway, right off the top. The, the windmills being currently proposed are for export power, not for domestic use, unless there's excess that gets sold back to the grid. So their plans are is to create the green hydrogen and ship it to markets in the United States or Europe or where have you. There's an MOU signed between, for instance, World Energy, GH2, and Germany. So whatever power they generate, the lion's share is if, if it's going somewhere else, not for us. Oh, so it's just exporting power for, for, for green hydrogen. Yeah, well, unless there, there is going to be the potential for some excess power they're unable to use that might be sold back to the grid. But I think that's a moving conversation, a moving target. So we don't really have all the ins and outs of that or how much power might be excess, what it be sold for. But the vast majority of their plan is to export the power. Yeah. Oh, okay, thank you very much. Appreciate the time, Paul. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, we're out of time. Good show today. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line.
On behalf of the producer, Greg Smith, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.